We who are about to die salute you. How's it going, everybody? Uh, We are back for, well, the final regular episode of Moratory Mondays. This is episode 31. We're covering the final monthly issue of Strike Force Moratory. They said it could never, not actually, nobody never said that. I think we were the only (laughs) ones who said it could probably never be done, but uh, we are always proving ourselves wrong or being proven wrong. So uh, it fits the theme. So how are you doing uh, this week, Chris? They thought it couldn't be done, brother. Uh, I'm not going to bet on the macho man right here today. No, sir. Nope. We did it, brother. 31 episodes. Who in the blue hell would have thought we would have made it this far? Anyway, we did. We're actually going to finish the series. And episode 31 is actually going to finally make the air, which is great because we got us a barn burner today. And I can't wait to dive in here and talk more Tory. Plus, a lot more stuff. So, boy. Mm-hmm. Batten down the hatches, folks. If you guys like uh, episodes with a little bit of meat on the bone, this one is the is the whole cow, brother. Absolutely, absolutely. And we're going to do a similar format that we did last time for episode 30 here. Uh, we did mention that uh, we really didn't pay too much uh, mind to the, uh, the histories and the careers of our creative team. Um, this show was more about the... Uh, the material, the uh, stories, the comics themselves, rather than the creators, which, I mean, in hindsight, might have been a mistake. I don't know. But uh, what we want to we do here. We were just saving the best for last, Chris. That's all. That's, we were, save, we were saving those nuggets for the very, very end. And by <laughs> God, all the all this time when we're talking about, man, we're going to ask the creators this, we're going to ask them that. Well, we did it. We sure did. So before we get into the second half of the Brent Anderson Q&A, how about we uh, how about we wrap up the gentleman's career up to this point? I mean, he's not done by uh, by any stretch of the imagination. He is still he's still kicking and putting out some amazing work. But uh, we're going to take you from Strike Force Moratory to present day with this second part of the Brent Anderson career career retrospective biography However you want to call it, I guess what we could just say is that we're gonna we're gonna take it back to a uh, oh to going, man going what, oh, what do we call this oh man I hope everyone at home got their seatbelts on because it's time to go full treadmill and now it's time to go full treadmill. Okay, going to try to keep this moderately brief because uh, we're going to be talking a lot more about some of this stuff a bit later on during this episode. So, following Strikeforce Moratory, Brent would pencil a three-issue Chuck Dixon-written miniseries called Valkyrie for Eclipse Comics, and those were cover dated July through September 1988. Also right around this time, he would provide pencils for a movie tie-in that... uh, in just a little bit, we're going to learn that he wasn't all that fond of, and this is the the Punisher movie tie-in, and yes, it's the Dolph Lundgren one. 
Throughout the early to mid-1990s, Brent would do some work over at DC Comics, including a couple of issues of Superman and a four-issue Judge Dredd miniseries. Then, in 1995, Astro City. Between 1995 and 2000, Brent and Kurt Busiek would create the original 21-issue run of Astro City, and that came out through uh, Jim Lee's homage comic sub-imprint of the Wildstorm imprint of uh, Image Comics. But during this run, Jim would actually sell to uh, DC Comics. Astro City would be followed up with several miniseries and one-shots, and some of those miniseries include Astro City Local Heroes, that was five issues, cover dated April 2003 through February 2004, Astro City The Dark Age Book One, four issues, August through November 2005, Astro City The Dark Age Book Two, four issues, January through November 2007, Astro City The Dark Age Book Three, four issues, January through October 2009, Astro City, The Dark Age, Book 4, four issues, March through June 2010, and those are all cover dates. Now, Astro City would actually return under the Vertigo imprint in 2013, where it would enjoy a 52-issue run, and nearly 40 of those issues were drawn by Brent himself. Around the turn of the century, if we count back a little bit, Brent would work with J. Michael Straczynski on a run of Rising Stars. Now, just a few weeks ago, or maybe a couple of months ago at this point, Marvel released a two-issue extended cut version of the classic God Loves Man Kills story, featuring all new pages by Chris Claremont and Brent Anderson. Now, Brent, he currently has a lot of irons in the fire, which you're going to hear all about a little bit later on during this episode, and links to all of his work and upcoming projects will be included in the show notes. Let's talk awards here, because uh, Brent's won a bunch. Now, he's won many awards for his work in the comics field, including an Inkpot Award in 1985. He also got Eisner Awards for uh, Best New Series, Astro City, 1996. Best Single Issue for Astro City in the years 1996, 1997, and 1998. Best Continuing Series for Astro City, 1997 and 1998. And Best Serial Story for Astro City in 1998. He won Harvey Awards for, you guessed it, Astro City. Best New Series, 1996. Best Single Issue or Story, 1996. And Best Graphic Album, 1997. He won the Don Thompson Award. This is from the CompuServe Comics and Animation Forum. Best Achievement by Penciler, 1996. Gonna assume that's Astro City. And this one as well. Best Single Creative Team, along with Kurt Busiek for 1998. He also won a Squiddy Award, which probably not a whole lot of people remember, but I do very fondly because the Squiddy was uh, something from my old stomping grounds of rack.arts.comics over on Usenet. He got this in 1996 for Astro City. And uh, a little side note here, Squiddy was named because uh, somebody had a typo typing Suicide Squad. They put Suicide Squid and then Suicide Squid became something of a mascot for Usenet, hence the Squiddy Awards. Uh, Brent lives in Northern California with his wife and his cats, and uh, you might, if you watch the YouTube video of the uh, interview that's going to happen in a little bit, you might actually see one of his cats. So that's that, and let's move on in with the rest of the show. All righty, and we are back with the second part of our Q&A. Do you want to kick us off with the questions here? Uh, this is going to be question five of eight. So uh, how about you How about you hit us off the uh, you tip this one off the bat for us. 
Absolutely. So this is, like I said, this is the fifth question in the Brent Anderson Q and A. Uh, we emailed the man all throughout the uh, the time that we were we were building these shows. We brought up a whole bunch of questions that you know we hoped and prayed that one day we'd be able to get the answers to. And Brett Anderson, being the super cool dude that he is, answered them for us. So here mm-hmm. we go. Question five. We're going to talk about we're going to talk about Marvel. What was going on? During the time that he was there, you know, he's he got to see the sights and sounds of Marvel during this time, during the shooter era. In the transition, so we, yeah. The transition period, which is which is fascinating to me. I mean, we've heard it in different podcasts. You know, Rob Servation's covered a few things. We've heard some industry podcasts around it. But I don't know if we had uh, such detailed responses as what Brent gives us. So this is some good information. So we're going to talk about the bullpen experience. The bullpen experience. It's the shooter era of Marvel. So I asked them, during the release of Strike Force Moratory, Marvel was famously undergoing big changes in the famed bullpen. And as you know, we covered that in gory detail. All the <laughs> changes, boy, you know, people moved across the street, you know, hanging out with uh, with, with the poor guy uh, doing copy over there. He used to work on G.I. Joe. God bless him. <laughs> uh, most famously, Jim Shooter was replaced with Tom DeFalco. And... Uh, Subsequently, the offices went through some major revamping and position changes, as as we heard. Uh, do you have any stories about your experience with the shooter era, you know, version of Marvel and the changes brought about with his departure and replacement? How, if any, did it affect your job creatively? And what did it mean job wise for you with all these changes happening around you? What was the vibe from your perspective as a creator? How would these changes impact you personally? And was there a radical shift from the shooter era to the DeFalco regimes? Anything of interest that you can share about your experience, opinions, or working on, you know, or, or, or actually both? Any differences, creative freedoms, deadlines, or impacts? And boy, Brent responded. He sure did. He says, I wasn't witness to the changes going on in the Marvel bullpen at the time. I had moved back to California in the fall of 1983 in order to work with Bruce Jones and April Campbell on Somerset Homes for Pacific Comics. It was after Somerset was complete, I flew back to New York to discuss possible projects for Marvel when Strike Force Moratory turned up, which I took back with me to San Diego. Of interesting note, Scott Williams, the inker and sometimes penciler on Strike Force Moratory, lived a few blocks from me in Pacific Beach, which made our collaboration on the art that much closer. Wills Protasio lived in San Diego also, and we all attended Pacific Comics sponsored together. This is how Will moratory i have i know totally i have no quote shooter stories to tell regarding this period but i will say i have respect for jim and the way he treated me when i worked for marvel the only story i have about jim goes back to my first visit to marvel back in 1976 when jim was assistant editor under then editor-in-chief archie goodwin in drawing my first marvel comic story which was a five-page backup featuring the angel and written by scott edelman I unilaterally, unilaterally, easy for me to say, changed the story in the art. Jim was editing the story and dressed me down nicely for disrespecting Scott by changing the story without discussing it with the writer (laughs) first. Uh, Jim taught me a lot about professionalism that day, and I will always respect him for that. So that's a a pretty cool story. (laughs) Boom. Uh, The only issue Peter Gillis and I had regarding Jim Shooter's creative mandates regarding Strike Force Moratory was Jim's insistence that every issue had to start with a recap of the concept for the series and show all the main characters and their relationships to each other within the first five pages. Now, given that mandate, I think Peter came up with some pretty creative, entertaining ways to meet the requirement, 
but it truncated Peter's latitude in telling his story and became tiresome, which uh, yeah, I think we can attest to. They were very creative, but they did oh, yeah. feel kind of <laughs> they did get in the way. Um, <laughs> now, uh, Brent wraps up with another anecdote I'd like to share is this. A bunch of us bullpenners used to play volleyball in Central Park on Sundays. We, being Jim Shooter, Archie Goodwin, Tom DeFalco, Denny O'Neill, Len Wein, Al Milgram, Jim Starlin, Dana Graziunas, Graziunas? Sorry, Diana, <laughs> uh, Carl Potts, Joe Chiato, and anyone else in the city needing exercise on a Sunday. And I will say, playing the net against the six-foot, seven-inch tall Jim Shooter was always a challenge. Nice. Well Real murderous played. row of uh, of creative uh, Marvel <laughs> talent there. That's that's wild. Who would have known? Like over at the Image Studios, just about just about to take place. You know, it was like a like a rock star place. But over at Marvel, we're playing volleyball. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's excellent. All right, so we're gonna head into question six, and this is leaving. It's about their departure. Mm-hmm. So I called this the Exodus. I said, anyone who is an informed Strike Force Moratory fans knows that the Anderson Gillis run is considered the best part of the entire 31 issue run. You both stayed on the book together for 20 issues and you did pencils on basically 18 or 19 of those issues. What can you tell me about the reason for yours and Peter's leaving? And Brent would respond with, this is a difficult question to answer, given what was going on for me personally and what was going on in the comics industry at the time. From my perspective, Peter Gillis possesses a degree of genius I couldn't begin to fathom when I first met him, but it wasn't long before I came to this conclusion. Peter's hand down, hands down the most literate, well-read writer I've ever worked with. As a student of European world and political history, he studied medieval German literature at the University of Chicago and graduated in 1980, probably with a master's degree. I don't know the extent of Peter's education, but it must be considerable, given the degree of expertise he displayed in conversations with me during the development of Strikeforce Moratorium. Peter has read just about every notable science fiction author author published, including many pulp magazines from the 30s and 40s, and I don't think he forgot a single word in any of them. As evidenced by the many oblique references in his writing, which was sometimes on a level far above his editors and publishers, if not many of the readers, including me. He thoroughly knows Shakespeare. He even brazenly swiped Hamlet for the death of Radian in Strikeforce Moratorium number 15. That is the question. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I never knew that. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? That's awesome. Absolutely. I can see that. Oh, wow. Yeah, I didn't, Great I job, didn't Peter. it the first time to, through either. Um, Very cool. <laughs> Brent continues, on Peter's mention of it, I swiped the famous ancient Roman statue, the Lacon Group. <laughs> I don't I'm sorry. I'm sorry, uh, Roman <laughs> statue. Uh, depicting the Trojan priest Lacon and his sons Antiphantes and Thimbrius, Thimbrius uh, being attacked by sea serpents for the cover art. Peter is on his own level as a writer and has never been recognized for it by the industry he most loved. The only other writer on Peter's level in the comics industry is Alan Moore. So uh, that's some praise right there. Wow. You said it, man. I mean, Alan Moore is considered when, when people think of like comic book writers or prolific, prolific comic book writers, mm. Alan Moore always comes up. But yeah, you know what? Gillis is uh, when you think about this work on this book alone, let alone anything else that he's done. I mean, it, it is amazing stuff. And I mean, uh, yeah. I think that uh, even Alan Moore himself, if he read this, he'd be very happy with Strike Force Moratory. I think so too. Yeah, Peter is definitely uh, unsung. Uh, you know, his his talent and his notoriety are not 
are not at the proper level. <laughs> he is he is wildly ta- talented, and his name doesn't really come up as often as it should. Um, uh, Brent continues, Peter studied classical music, and though not classically trained, he played piano quite well. Once, when attending an early San Diego Comic-Con, Peter discovered a grand piano on the mezzanine level of the Westgate Hotel. I think the host- hotel hosted the Eisner Awards that year. Anyway, after the, the awards were over, I walked through the lobby and heard someone playing the piano one level up, so I went to investigate. It was Peter, and he was playing some classical piece of music on it and played it beautifully. I recall during our moratory development weekend at his mom's house, Peter tinkled out a few notes on his mom's upright, telling me his mom was a pianist who didn't play much anymore. I didn't know if Peter learned to play from his mom, but he was, a very, accompli- he was very accomplished there on the mezzanine at the Westgate Hotel. And except for my girlfriend and me in the audience, he was totally alone in his world of piano music. So that's pretty cool stuff. Man, just <laughs> like he's a, uh, you know, just a genius behind a the pen. of all trades, yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's into it all, this guy. Man. Absolutely. Unsung, I say. <laughs> uh, Brent continues, Strike Force Moratory was a difficult book to get started and a harder book to leave. It was Peter's singular vision contribution to the House of Ideas, as Marvel was known as Marvel was known, and when Peter and I were kids reading Marvel comics, Peter had collected, I believe, an entire run of Marvel comics from 1961 to 1971 on. He stored them in several four-drawer filing cabinets in his mother's house in the attic bedroom he'd shared with his brother when they were kids. The comic books weren't packed neatly into Mylar bags with backing boards, or even stored in the early polyethylene plastic sandwich bags folded over and taped for protection. They were jammed into each file drawer upright, in order, ready to be pulled out and read without preamble. That sounds a lot like my long box oh, situation. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, listen, he sounds like a guy who actually read some books. So you know, yeah. I'm I'm, gl- I'm glad that someone enjoyed you know this volume when it comes to that. You know what I mean? I mean, you got these early Marvel stuff is exploding. I mean, you want to read these things. You want to be on the cusp of it, but instead. Oh, yeah. You know, a lot of people just slab away and they don't get the enjoyment. But it sounds like Mr. Gillis was was all in on the Marvel. Awesome. He was a comics fan's comic fan, for sure. Um, Brent continues, in addition to science fiction and fantasy authors, Peter and I also liked the same pop culture icons from film and television. Orson Welles, the Fleischer Brothers Superman and Popeye cartoons, Warner Brothers and Chuck Jones cartoons, Star Trek, Lucy, Lupin the Third, 2001 A Space Odyssey, every single pop reference. Peter knew computers, science, NASA history, the world's wars, and made thematic connections between all of them in Strike Force Moratory. If you check out the humorous feature we did, uh, how Peter and Brent create and destroy Strike Force Moratory, and that was in uh, Strike Force Moratory issue 13, I believe, uh, it's pretty accurate and funny depiction of our actual process. <laughs> and we 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 quipped about that as well. I mean, we, we, we pretty we pretty well said that this is exactly what's going on. And boy, we were right on the money. It's good to, it's good to hear Brent actually put that over. It's great. Yeah, definitely. It's good to get confirmation though. I I I don't know if they actually just threw darts at a board, but, <laughs> but I think again, I think I've been wrong before. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, Peter and I put everything we had into creating something that had never been seen before. A thoughtful treat on mortal superheroes and the value or futility they potentially held as benefit for a besieged society. Peter had a talent for making socially relevant observations and not just the world at large, but the comic book industry as well. Unfortunately, there were too many cooks advising the head chef in the moratory kitchen, I'm, I'm afraid. Peter recently told me that an early incarnation of the new universe idea was, quote, a bunch of non-interconnected but more realistic books. 
It was on the basis that Jim Shooter looked at Strikeforce Moratori. But when the new universe became a shared universe, apparently nobody told Carl, and he continued to develop Strikeforce Moratori as a separate series. <laughs> yes, and thank mm. God he did. Thank you, yep. Carl. Thank you for nobody telling Carl. That was genius. <laughs> My understanding was that we, were, we had been given the green light to do it our way. But from the very beginning, the difficulty we encountered just titling the new book presaged creative trouble. Peter wanted to simply call the book Moratori and let the, the readers discover its inference to the Moratori fighters of ancient Rome and what they meant to the story. As editor, Carl Potts suggested the title total war a giveaway <laughs> yes a, a giveaway peter felt was too generic and not specific enough for this story the compromise was to add the military sounding elite word strike force to moratory which be accepted without grumbling too much after i designed the cover logo this hyphenated title was still too vague and overt meaning for carl and jim or tom who started discussing other titles Peter and I didn't want to change the title, so we dis- we suggest so I suggested we run the line "We Who Are About to Die" as part of the design, which made it cluttered and unwieldy as a logo, but it was accepted, so we ran with it. Peter wasn't completely happy as this cumbersome title gave away too much of the comic surprise element on the cover, but it was either accept that or kill the whole deal and walk away. Seeing how things turned out for the book, I kind of wish we'd taken it elsewhere, but c'est la vie. I humorously thought to myself at the time that another moratory related quote should heed the title, This Too Shall Pass. So interesting stuff there. Very interesting oh my stuff. God. Uh, like like good detail. I mean, you're talking about an original title of the you know, of the book. And just imagine if we had a book called Total War. Would we I still think. be talking about that today? I mean, that sounds I agree. It's it sounded super generic, so I'm glad that we dodged a oh. bullet on that one. I'm also glad that Carl Potts didn't get the memo and just kept on making that series and just dodged that new universe bullets too, because that, that is a hilarious story. We're going to have to ask Carl about that one day. I mean, that, that is hilarious. Well, I mean, I mean, this, I this is uh, pulling back the layers here, man. We're finding totally. information that we've never heard before anywhere. This is great. Totally. And, I, and I'm wondering like if this book was just titled one word moratory, I'm, I wonder how it would have gotten over or if it would have gotten over. Mm, I don't know. I, Strike Force really stands out to you, especially as a kid buying it off the spinner rack. For sure. Strike Force Moratory. And it wasn't like Martel and uh, Santana either. It was no. like actually <laughs> Strike Force Moratory. I like the name. It, it grew on oh, yeah. me. So. I think so too. And I, and I, and I, I do like the, uh, I do like the We Who Are About to Die. Uh, me too. I, I guess me too. Uh, that's. It's one of those things that sticks with you too, you know what I mean? Yeah. That that tagline, I remembered all the all throughout the run, you know what I mean? As a kid growing up, it was like strike force moratorium, you always remembered that line. So I mean, mm-hmm. whatever they were going for, it worked. It did. It did. Uh, back to Brent, he says, "You'll notice the subtitle on the cover of the first issue is Total War on Earth." Carl's original suggestion for lead title. <laughs> way to get way way to please everybody right there. That's get, good. You, yep, you check all the boxes. Uh, the pushing and pulling back and forth stemmed from Carl thinking of Strike Force Moratory as a pro-military superhero book with science fiction overtones, while Peter and I saw it as an anti-war science fiction book with superhero overtones. A quick aside: the summer the movie Independence Day premiered at Comic Con, Dean Devlin, the director and a guest of the con, sent an emissary to my table in Artist Alley to tell me Dean wanted me to know what an inspiration Strike Force Moratory was in the development of his film. Wow, uh, that's that's some wild stuff. 
Well, uh, think about it. When when you think about it, the Horde and those aliens from Independence Day have a lot in common. So mm-hmm. uh, especially their motives and the way they attacked Earth and different things like that. I mean, yeah, I can really see the inspiration. So listen, good on Strike Force Moratori. I mean, it went beyond just just the pages of those comic books. I mean, this this is mm-hmm. translating to, and I mean, Independence Day that was a massive movie. Massive block. Massive. Yeah, and and props to uh, Dean Devlin for actually giving credit. Because I feel oh, like yeah. awesome. I feel like a lot of creative types wouldn't do that. <laughs> so, giving credit <laughs> for the inspiration that 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 gets huge check marks from me. So good on me you, uh, Dean. Um, Brent wraps up with uh, Dean had wanted to tell me personally, but his schedule at the con was too tight, which I'm sure it was uh, tighter than the crowds <laughs> packing the aisles between him and me across a crowd. He's on. He talks for him of things. Now, the primary reason for me was diminishing sales in both the direct market and newsstand. And at this time, my failing health was adversely affecting my ability to work a monthly deadline, especially in those pre-internet days. Within my cowlinus and illness, I was dissatisfied enough with what I saw as editorial meddling to comment on it in the fan press. Notoriously wow. responsible. Yeah. This, this, now, this is a cartoon that I looked for for the past week and a half, and I have not been able to find it. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess there was a, a cartoon in a, an issue of something in the fan press, maybe the Comics Journal, maybe Amazing Heroes, something along those lines. But uh, Brent says he was notoriously responsible for the, quote, singing creator bird freelancer in a cage being held by the Marvelous Dancing Bear cartoon. (laughs) Shots fired. (laughs) Yep. He continues with, I have no regrets for having expressed my honest dissatisfaction with the comics industry, but it sure created a kerfuffle. Now, uh, Peter told me the reason he left was because I did. Peter was theoretically ready to go on writing the series after number 20, and he gave Carl Potts a very short list of artists that he would consider working with, which included Prince Valiant artist Thomas Yates. Or Yates. Uh, but Carl and Peter couldn't wow. find or agree on a suitable replacement artist. Peter refer- preferred working with a single artist and not to play musical artists on a series. Well, no. uh, here, here's here's what I'll comment on this, and uh, <laughs> I hope Brent agrees with me. Uh, take a look at issue 21. Uh, they didn't have the right artist in mind. Move on. They sure didn't. They sure didn't. Uh, Brent continues, if Marvel ever had designs to editorially step in and change storylines on the book, Peter never heard about them from Carl. So Peter took the last few issues and tied up as many loose ends as he could and show as much of his original ending for the series as was applicable. As I said earlier, the book never real, was never really about Viking the Chronicler, but Peter was forced to end it that way out of necessity. The ending was handled as handled does provide a nice circle to the story as a 20-issue graphic novel. The series opened with Harold joining the Moratori and ends with his posthumous recording, recorded thoughts about the Moratori's value as symbols and fighters in defending human society. And yeah, that was... We mentioned it. I mean, I think we both got a little bit choked up in that issue because yeah. uh, it was. I mean, we hear here that it was a that it was out of necessity, but it was perfect, you know, as a, yeah, as a capper. If, if there's such thing as the conclude a perfect conclusion to a story, uh, issue twenty was, was that. definitely that. I mean, you could not have asked for better. And no, the fact sure. that and the fact that this book continued to be, you know, pretty pretty stellar. Moving forward was it was a you know a compliment to the creative team after the fact because you know they they did they did hold the house together despite you know falling sales. Sure. But man, I'm telling you right now to put a capper and you know to write a last issue like that, uh, it was a signature and high watermarks for these guys. I mean you know Absolutely. Anderson 
ridiculous run. Uh, it, it's literally a perfect 20 issues as far as I'm concerned. Loved it. Yeah, absolutely. So I continued to ask Brent. I said, how would you define your overall experience with the book? What were the highs and lows? And uh, Brent would reply with, the co-creation of Strike Force Moratorium with Peter Gillis is one of the high points of my career. First opportunity to professionally create or co-create an entirely self-contained universe. This was a childhood fantasy not fully realized until working with Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross on Astro City ten years later. The high point of Strike Force Moratory was the pure act of creation. The lows were the realization that the marketplace didn't validate the comic book with sales, and the Sci-Fi Channel's option on producing an original TV series was never going to happen. Uh, boo those people not buying that book. Boo, boo. Anyway, I continued. I asked, I said, what would you like the fans to take away from your work here? I want readers to take with them whatever enjoyment they receive from reading the stories, caring for the characters, and giving thought to the many and varied personal expressions Peter and I made in producing the series. I can't ask for more than than that for any creation. Oh, boy, I agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I continued again. I said, if Strike Force if a Strike Force moratory relaunch or reboot ever happened and you got the call, would you be interested in revisiting this book? As for your relationship creatively with Peter Gillis, how did that look after you both left the title? And Brent would say, Peter and I are lifelong friends as a result of our work together on Strike Force Moratory. We talked long ago of possibly taking the concept into a more adult direction sometime in the future, but a moratory is likely right now. I have many other projects in my future, but who knows? The gods work in mysterious ways sometimes. So fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Oh, man. Maybe the right people will hear this podcast and mm-hmm. we'll share this baby out. So you know what? If you want Strike Force <laughs> Moratory to become a thing, share this baby. Let's get that out in the universe because you know what happens when things get out in the universe, Chris. Mm-hmm. Stuff happens. We might have the, uh, you know, the uh, Anderson Gillis cut. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Strike we Force Moratory forever. Yes. Oh, yes, baby. <laughs> So I continued on. Yep, I kept asking this poor man questions, and he continued to respond. I said, talking about his current era work. Uh, So I asked him about where fans can find your work today. And Brent would say, copies of Astro City are available through the Sonoma County Library and the Windsor Unified School District Libraries. This was another dream come true for me that my comics, my comics, would be allowed in a public school. Comic books were not allowed in school during my days as a student. Oh, boy. I, I hate to be in his school. I, I was certainly allowed to have comics. Now, wh- whether that, you know, they they were going to be banned or anyone realized I was actually reading them is another story. So yeah, boo to those people. Textbook. Yeah. Yes, I was I was reading my uh, Amazing Spider-Man and, and Strike Force Moratory hidden behind my English book. That's for sure. <laughs> I also asked him, I said, any exciting projects or things that you would like fans of yours to check out in the future? And Brent would say, I am working with Kurt Busiek on a non-Astro City graphic novel for Image Comics, and I'm about a third of the way done with it. Ooh, uh, yes. Mm-hmm. I've also been working on an original graphic novel with my wife, Shirley Johnston, El Jaguar Origins Crossing Borders, which I am a little, little more than halfway finished. Oh, uh, man, I'm super pumped over both projects. For sure. Uh, there's a website with that name where I've posted the art so far. Kurt and I will be putting Astro City back into production soon, and I continue to write prose stories and outlines for other personal projects I'm working on, as well as newspaper-style comic strip. But who knows when or if any of those will get pu- produced or published. I hope all of them, but I'm I'm old and I may not outlive my imagination. <laughs> 
I also opened my studio up for art commissions this past June and filled my month of Sunday's art commission event schedule. This event helped me get through the early effects of shelter in place and business disruptions stemming from the pandemic. I opened my art commission studio schedule to a limited number of slots on the first of every month. For those who may be interested in reserving a spot on my schedule, I make monthly announcements on my website, which is brentandersonart.com, and we will link to that, of course. My Facebook page and on my Twitter account, we will link to all of those in the show notes. Oh, heck yes. Now, I asked him a funny question, and he, and, <laughs> and, I, and I love his answer, too. It's very honest. I said, what are your thoughts on the current, current day now, comic book landscape? And, uh, and a man after our own hearts here, he replies with... I haven't a clue with what's going on in the current comic book landscape. Well, well, Brent, we wish we didn't either. (laughs) (laughs) So I continued. I said, was there anything you're enjoying, disliking, any trends, examples? And I I cited digital comics, variant covers, pricing, original art market, collectivity, or the drive towards diversity as examples of those things. And he said... Actually, I'm not much interested in the trends or marketing of of comics. I am much more interested in the diverse variety and volume of self-produced comics that have been produced over the past decade. I'm particularly encouraged by the zine fest phenomenon of recent years and the organized gatherings of comics aficionados to produce, print, sell, and trade their own comics with each other rather than market a brand to a large group of faceless consumers. I'm funny that way. That said, I hope when the COVID thing has been resolved in some manner of the slow-moving engine of getting Astro City onto television, we'll start up again. Oh, man. I hope so, too. And boy, man, you talk about meat meat on the bone. Mm -hmm. Those are some answers. Man, number one, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Brent Anderson, for taking the time to respond to us. Our, our little show, you know, we never, ever thought that uh, we would get some answers to the questions. But uh, like I said, Brent was super cool to uh, to send us those answers. And we did, you know what, we did get a a good batch of questions, mm-hmm. um, you know, through through Facebook, through, do, for, through DM, through Twitter and all this stuff of extra questions from uh, fans of the show and people who, uh, who listen along. And, uh, well, you know what? I think it's enough of us talking. Why don't we just ask the man himself? Yeah, why don't we do that here? Let's uh, let's uh, let's talk to the man himself and uh, and have him answer some of your questions. So, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Brent Anderson. Alrighty, and here we are, joined by the co-creator and artist of Strike Force Moratory, Mr. Brent Anderson. We want to thank you so so much for. Uh, for gracing us with your presence today, this is a this is a really big deal to us here. Uh, I believe we reached out to you on the very day our first episode came out. This was a uh, September twenty third, twenty nineteen. We reached out and just said it wasn't me because I don't have uh, the courage to do such a thing. It was Mr. Bailey who reached out and said, uh, "Hey, we have this show. Would you mind coming on?" And uh, here we are. Hey, you, hey, Thanks. you know, when when it's one of your favorite artists, I had to take a gamble. You know what I mean? Absolutely. So, uh, of course, this show was on Strike Force Moratory. And, uh, you know, I, I I wanted to take a gamble. I said, hey, maybe, you know, maybe Brent would answer one question over email. And not only did he do that, he answered <laughs> a whole bunch of questions in, in great detail. And then he offered to come on the show. So, brother, welcome to uh, Moratory Mondays. And we are super glad to have you. And uh, the floor is yours. So, Introduce yourself to us. 
Well, as you said, I think anybody watching this knows who I am, at least as far as Strikeforce Moratoria is concerned. Um, I've been in the business since 1976 um, and have worked on a number of uh, co-created series and uh, projects throughout the 40 years I've been working. Um, starting with Kazar the Savage. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, then I turned down the regular assignment for the X-Men book on the same day that I quit Kazar. And uh, and then uh, Chris Claremont said, well, if you don't want to do the series, um, how would you like to do this graphic novel I've got? So the X-Men graphic novel, God Loves, Man Kills, was next. Oh, yeah. And from there, uh, I moved to San Diego and worked with Bruce Jones and April Campbell on Somerset Holmes. Nice. And then Strike Force Mortuary. Um, I did a few fill-ins on Power Pack. I did mm-hmm. six Power Pack uh, for uh, June Brigman and uh, Weezy Simonson. And that brings me up to Mortuary, which was in the mid-80s, I think. Correct. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and uh, so, so, Brent, I just wanted to ask you a little bit about... Just starting with Marvel. So, you know, you're, how long were you into business before you actually jumped on board with Marvel? And what, like, what was that introduction like to actually get a job there? You know what I mean? Well, I, um, just out of high school, or actually while I was still in high school, I sent some portfolio samples to uh, John Ramirez Sr. He was the art director at the time. And I sent two packages about six months apart, and I got very nice rejection letters <laughs> from, from, from John uh, with the invitation that if I ever wanted to go to New York to bring my portfolio in to the offices, which is what we did. Uh, me and three friends drove across the country in the summer of 1976 across the country to, in a drive-away car. That had to be delivered, <laughs> had to be delivered to Washington D.C. We were going to New Jersey, where uh, uh, one of my companions had an aunt uh, that we were going to stay with until we could find a place of our own. We wound up living in Clifton, New Jersey. But um, I walked in the doors at Marvel, and John Ramita Sr. remembered my work. Uh, oh, okay. We showed him my portfolio, and. We, we linked up with Neil Adams at Continuity Associates uh, because Neil was setting himself up to help young artists get started yeah. in business mm-hmm. and recommend them and do reviews, critical reviews and stuff like that. So essentially, I walked into Marvel when we got there and uh, walked out with work. <laughs> <laughs> so was there anything about your portfolio that they jumped on? Like what did, what did you have in there that you uh, – you know, that you boasted that was, you know, your your catch all, we'll say. I, it was just I was an artist artist. I get I really liked to draw. Yeah. And mm-hmm. they liked my panel to panel storytelling. I mean, I didn't I didn't really do anything with dialogue. I just I just laid out. Uh, I think I did. I think I did. I think they they required you to send up up to five pages. Of samples. Gotcha. So I did a page. Ironically enough, I did a page of Kazar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Well done. Because I like Neil Adams as Kazar when he was doing it, when he did Kazar on the X-Men. 
Sure. Yep. Um, and then I did an Iron Man. I don't know. See, it was a Shang Chi versus Batrock the Leaper. Okay. Oh, good old Batrock. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, okay, that might be a nice pairing to show an action page, you know, and and to show how I handle different characters. Um, I did an Iron Man Havoc confrontation, mm. uh, which intrigued me. So I did a because I always like Havoc's costume and I like the way that Neil had done, treated Havoc. And uh, Iron Man, I think, was popular at the time. Um, I mean, the Iron Man, the alcoholic. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Demon in the bottle, baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. Demon <laughs> in a bottle. Um, but anyway, so I had sent those in. And uh, when John Romita Sr. looked at my portfolio when I actually went in in person, he said, he said, yeah, I think I think you're about ready to try something out. Yeah. I went, okay, that's cool. And the one comment he made was that when I when I drew when I drew women, he says you're putting too many bumps on them. (laughs) 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 Yeah, smooth out the curves. I know they have you know like um, uh, scapula that form a bump, (laughs) and then they have ribs that form bumps, and then they have a little inward in the waist. And then there's a bump on the top of the pelvis, and then there's the trochanter of the leg, and there's all these little bumps. Get rid of those. Oh, <laughs> you imagine trying to draw realistic women. Who knew? Just do a nice, you know, smooth line to show the shape of, of the young lady that you're drawing. Oh, boy. That's always stayed with me, you know, so that was really good. Sure. <laughs> well, you did a good job afterwards, sir. I will say that. Absolutely. <laughs> so we're gonna hit uh, we're gonna hit you up with a bunch of our listener questions. So mm-hmm. we have a couple uh, very you know uh, eclectic group who really really uh, enjoy our show and they they absolutely wanted to ask you some questions. So we're gonna hit uh, hit you up first with Green Lantern HG, who is a huge fan of our show, always writes in and he asked, what was your favorite character from Strike Force Moratory or your least favorite character? Well, I, I generally, on any project I work on, I don't have a favorite mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. most favorite or even a least favorite. Right. Uh, I may not like a particular character, but that's good. If you're not yeah. supposed to like them. Sure. Uh, if I, you know. Absolutely. <laughs> um, but I do develop an affection for specific characters, depending on who they are in the series. And I would have to say the answer to that would be, um, uh, what's her name? Uh, Aline. Uh, oh yeah, Blackthorn. Yes, because mainly because the the the, the series was not about um, Harold, was not mm. about Viking. The series was actually about Aline, and later on when she was to get pregnant, uh, I knew that she was going to play a very significant role in the direction that Peter was taking the series in. Even if I didn't fully, completely understand where all the characters were going to wind up, I don't think I don't think Peter actually had figured it all out yet. But he had a general direction, and everything hinged around Aline's pregnancy okay. as the conclusion or the or the climax of the story. So I would say uh, her. And there's one shot. There's one shot in there that I I penciled in ink. It's a it's a close up of her face crying. Yeah, oh, we yep. we we you well aware. We we spoke yep. about it at length at the on the podcast. Oh, okay. All right. Well, really, really strong. Mm-hmm. Well, that reinforces what I just said about her being my quote unquote favorite character, mm-hmm. simply because she was the most important character to the series. In yeah, my mind, and 
Yeah, man, I've I've always wanted to tell you this. You nailed that panel. Oh yeah. <laughs> wow. That was that. We spoke about we raved about it almost to the point that uh, you know we figured that people were going to run away from the show. Yep. But anyway. <laughs> and I'll tell you, uh, Scott, Williams, Scott Williams, the inker on the on 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 the book. Uh, I told him ahead of time of that issue. I said. I'll be inking this face, and it's 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 no slight against you as an inker. You've been doing a great job and all that, but I need this panel to really be what I need it to be. Yeah, that's and, that, and that's the danger of being an artist. I think is that you're you're trusting that some inker is going to get you know your vision down on this page. You know what I mean? I mean, how many times did you run into an inker that uh, almost took didn't make the mark? Or, yeah, <laughs> yeah it took some liberties. Oh. A few times, and we'll just yeah. leave it at that. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I, I am such a, like I said, I'm an artist's artist. And, and so I tend to draw very tightly, at least in the beginning. I drew mm-hmm. very, very tight pencils. I called it penciler's paranoia because if a not-so-accomplished inker or Finnish artist was to take these pencils, if all they did was trace it, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it would come through because there was enough there to trace and, and it would come through. And on occasions that 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 happened where I thought the finish could have been better. But the emotions and everything that I needed in the faces because they were tightly penciled came through. Right. Um, there were other times when an inker or a finisher would enhance something that wasn't drawn so tightly. And I think Scott Williams did that more often than not in Strike Force Moratory. Um, he he really had a nice sense for line, but he also had a nice he had enough of a penciler sense. He's also a penciler, and mm-hmm. he actually penciled a couple of issues of uh, of uh, not of Strike Force, but um, Power Pack. I think he finished my layouts by penciling and then and then inking them. Okay, nice. Uh, but. So anyway, his his drawing skills would come through if I was a little bit lax, uh, you know, trying to meet a deadline if something was too sketchy or whatnot. But Moraturi, I tended to miss the deadline in order to make it right. <laughs> uh, good man. Well, you, you did your job there. Um, Green Lantern HG continues. He wonders what your favorite moment from the series was. Now, I know you discussed, you know, Aileen and, you know, she was going to be the central character. But uh, do you have anything that sticks out to you as your favorite moment as an artist, say? Yeah, actually, it was the um, it was the dual death of of um, the commander and um, of a marathon. Yes. Oh, that that was so cinematic. Yeah. Wow. That that last panel was was there an inspiration for that? Because that looked that's an amazing piece. That last panel where you have like um, uh, Beth Neon as the central piece and like everything else is like a almost like an arm of almost like a tree it's your like branches branching out. Off. you see yeah. yeah you see everybody's reaction and views you know what i mean that was brilliant mm-hmm. oh thanks yeah those are those are concentric the the panel borders were concentric circles yes, mm-hmm. yes. and then divided up the, the sections with moments in that exact moment when beth neon was passing over and all the flowers were blooming and oh, yeah. the other characters were lamenting uh, marathons passing at the same time. Um, I think that was probably my favorite moment in the series. Uh, yeah, man. Hard, awesome. hard, to, hard to dispute that one. Mm-hmm. Um, sure. He also continues on, and this is a great question. He wonders if you were an actual Strike Force moratory candidate, so a recruit, what would your powers be? 
what would I hope they would be? <laughs> I, I guess so, yeah. Because <laughs> there was no guarantee what you That's would get. That's true, yeah. yeah. Um, well, first off, I'm not courageous enough to have joined my Strike Force Moratorium. <laughs> Me neither. Not us either, but, yeah. <laughs> but if uh, I think my power would be I wouldn't die. <laughs> oh, brilliance. Of course. I mean, that was what I would hope for. But what would I be likely to get uh, based on my personality, which is supposedly that was a link to what powers you would get. Uh, yeah. And and then it would be determined what viability they might have in defending the Earth against the Horde. Right. Um, right. So, some were useless powers. Some were, you know, too powerful. They destroyed the moratory before you even got out the door, et cetera, et cetera. But let's see, what powers would I like the moratory effect to give me? Uh, I don't. I don't really know. I have to think about that. I probably come yeah. up with something funny. <laughs> I, th- I think a lot. Of, I think a lot of the power of the the show, or not the show, the actual comic book itself, was that they didn't have standard powers. You know what I mean? People yeah. didn't have you know eye beams and different things like that. Like they actually had powers that you'd never think of, like being able to analyze something, being able to, you know, melt down molecular bonds and different different things like that. You know what I mean? So I think that one of the strengths of the book was that, you know, they didn't go for just your typical Justice League, you know, we have a guy who can run fast and we have a guy who can, you know what I mean? So I think that was one of the uh, one of the cool things that really stuck out to me was the unusual choice of powers. But I, I really dug it. Totally. Well, that's what I liked about Beth Neon's power was that she submitted herself to the moratorium process and now she can make flowers bloom. Yeah. It's yeah. a love power to have, but it's not much good against the horde. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> so she well, became yeah. a commander and, and uh, kept it a secret that she had actually undergone the process herself. Maybe they were allergic to pollen and she's going to like really get there them a or something. I don't know. <laughs> they were chocolate, if you recall. Yeah. Yes. yes. Hey, well, maybe that would be my power. A chocolate maker. A chocolate Anything into chocolate. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. We're trying to lose weight here. <laughs> and then we wind up with big fat hornier. <laughs> exactly. And you have one more question from, uh, from Gene. Yes. He goes, uh, if it ever became a TV show or a movie, and he could choose what actress or actresses would be in it, who would they be? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> <laughs> not a movie guy? Well, not a recent movie guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I generally don't view the work that I do uh, in the creation of the work as it relates to real actors or movie stars or whatnot, particularly if it's an original work. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I did a I did a, a series called Spin World, but originally it was called The Spacing Dutchman that um, had two characters in it that I did more or less base on movie stars or movie actors. One was he was an elderly James Bond type. So, of course, it was Sean Connery in later oh, yes. years. And then the uh, other character was a police chief of, a, of, a, of an orbiting um, space station. Uh who was the Contessa, and she was patterned off of Modesty Blaze, if Modesty Blaze was played by Sophia Loren in 1960. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, but that was just sort of give me a reference point for the for the, the characters themselves. Um, mm-hmm. Right. The actor. So as far as casting a TV show or a movie, I would trust 
whoever was doing the movie casting or the TV show casting to, to, to make those choices. I might agree with them or not, but then. <laughs> I, I think most studios choose who they want anyway, regardless of uh, what the character looks like these For days. Sure. <laughs> so, yeah. Anyway, I think, Chris, I think you're up, sir. Yes, we have a question from Low Effort Dave, our, our good friend. Um, and he says, I hear the ultimate plan was to get to issue 50. Where Were there other generations of characters planned out? And did you already have visuals mapped out for them? Actually, no. Um, by the time we got to issue 20, there were serious problems with the, um, the sale of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, because as I may have mentioned in the interview, that the strength of Moratoria as a series was also its weakness as a product. Mm-hmm. Right. Because as the initial Moratoria died off, the sales on the book dropped. They yeah. would drop like five or ten percent with each death. And since we had like the death of wow. most original characters before issue six or seven, and the issue six was when Harold died. Yeah. Right. And then by issue thirteen, when we had introduced the new set of Moratori, and they had their 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 Moratori versus Moratori uh, uh, issue. Um, the attempt to create new moratory to go up the, against the old moratory and establish new fans for the new moratory didn't quite pan out the way we had hoped. Mm. People just didn't shift their loyalties from the now dead ones to the new ones that it's they been- knew to die too so they were hesitant i guess about getting involved anymore sure sure. it's hilarious you said that because part of our show we talk about when each generation came in like we're very we were very territorial about our original moratory like really really so when you got like you know uh will gucci yeah and and toxin and those and that group that came in i mean we were they were sort of we were sort of standoffish with them as as fans you know what i mean Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, but we grew to like them, of course, they they assimilated in and we took we took them under our wing because of the, you know, the story was really good. Mm-hmm. And then the the third wave came with Sheer and Brava and we were like, oh, no, not again. We hate these know? people. Yeah, <laughs> we hate these guys. <laughs> but I, but I think they were, they were written with almost like an antagonistic entry Mark, point, too. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think that it seemed intentional. I don't know if that was the original what you thought you guys were attempting to do. Yeah, Peter. Peter had an idea of of exploring just about every possible character type or personality type uh, through the the entire cast over the entire series. That's why he he had it in mind to go to issue fifty because he would he would introduce six characters at a time yes. over a period of about a year. Mm-hmm. And then tell those characters stories and have them interrelate with other character types. And then they would die off and then be replaced by different character types. So there would be this 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 interweaving of personality clashes and thematic, you know, explorations of what it is to be human. And how do some humans deal with an exist, existential threat as opposed to other humans who have varying powers? And since the powers reflect who they are, I would say that, you know, back to the question about my favorite character or least favorite character of the group that Sheer was included in, I really liked the character of Sheer because I despised him. 
<laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, he, we, were, he, we were mostly the same. Yep. He was a loose cannon that once once he was directed at the horde, <clears throat> great, slice yeah. him up. Sure. But when he was in a conflict with with his fellow moratori or whatnot, and actually murdered one of them, mm. uh, that really set up a situation. That was the issue that that was the the play on Hamlet. Um, yes. And uh, and it was the murder of uh, Louis. Like Louis, yeah. yeah. Right. And that that was a moment when the editor, when Carl Potts was saying, um, man, I don't know if we can do this. <laughs> but if it was in the Marvel universe, couldn't have done it. No way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But because it was moratory and they were trying to get the sales up on it and stuff like that. Like, <laughs> this is a moment that will at least be talked about, you know. And, yeah, sure. uh, and so they, I guess they, they went with it for that reason. I think I had laid out a much more graphic demise uh, murder for that. Mm. And I think what eventually wound up seeing print was a bit of a compromise. But that was so, fine. So what, what did you have in mind? I don't recall exactly. Okay. I, just, I just remember that if you're going to show a murder, don't. And it's supposed to be brutal. Yes. You, you, you know, having, having it appear off camera. Yeah, mm. sure. That's like Hitchcock, right? Yeah, sure. But if you actually like, you know, taking Hitchcock as an example, um, he would take the guy with the knife and show him to you and then put him off camera. And then he'd right. have his victim walk across, looking around, wondering what's going on, and then walk off camera and then get murdered. Yeah. Right. So. What you're thinking in your head may be far worse than what actually yes, happened. So that, that's 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 great. But in um, what was the Hitchcock film? Was it Torn Curtain, where they murder the Nazi? It was, I think it was Paul Newman. Okay. And and uh, he and his girl, his woman accomplice, um, are trying to murder this guy with a knife. And it's not killing him. And oh. she keeps stabbing him and he's still alive and still alive. And Newman opens up the oven and cranks up the gas in the oven and shoves this guy's head in the in the in, to, to get the gas to, you know, and he's like trying to shield himself from the gas. But he's trying to get this guy to succumb to the gas. And it's a long, drawn out, extremely brutal murder. Oh, man, I got to check that out. <laughs> yeah. And Hitchcock did it that way because he wanted to show how difficult it was actually to kill a human being. Sure. It's a hard thing to do. And he needed to show that on camera. And that's one of the more talked about scenes in yeah. uh, Hitchcock. Mm. Man. <laughs> we're, we're, we're talking ovens. <laughs> exactly. Well, that was that was the reason that Hitchcock set it up that way was because this was a Nazi going to his death in an oven. Oh, well, there you Which, go. That was a. That was a big part of the of the, of the plot of the story, but mm, there was okay. uh, there was a film by um, uh, Tarantino, was it uh, was it Reservoir Dogs, where yeah, they, they put where the guy the, in the chair and they cut him off. Guys in the chair and they cut off his ear. Oh, that was horrible. They cut off his ear off camera. You never see him cut off his ear. Yep. You just see him, oh, and then you hear him scream, and then he comes back and he's holding the ear in his hand and he's just walking back and forth across you know the background, right? <laughs> yeah, that was great. That's an example of. I think that was more the effect I was going for. I mean, before the fact, uh, sure. with the death of Louis, of Louis um, at the hands of Shear. 
having it be more or less off panel. And really what, what sent that home was sheer walking away with an insult. Yes. Know? Oh yeah. And, and literally, literally yeah. spitting on the guy. Yeah. The yeah. Of the, it was that, it was that comment. Mm-hmm. So. Wow. No, that, you're right. That was cool. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, low effort Dave continues here. He asks if the fifth Jenners, uh, revenge scanner, lifter and burn, were they part of your guys's plan or were they created after the fact? No, I think they were all created after us. Okay. I, uh, probably James Hudnall and uh, Carl Potts probably came up with those characters. Okay. And, and are you are you familiar with their designs there? Because uh, they're given more like standard superhero, mainstream superhero designs here. Uh, what do you think about the costumes in comparison to the costumes that you created uh, on the I, earlier? I have no thoughts at all because I I'm, I I can't even bring them to mind what they look like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, very very uh, standard. Yeah. I will make a little aside. I'm I'm sure there's a question coming up somewhere about um, what is my opinion or what was my appro- approach to what Jim Hudnall had done and the artists that had drawn it. I don't even know who the artists were uh, who were drawing the book after I was on it, but I remember that. Uh, uh, Jim Hudnall was a good friend. He is a good friend. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, at the time, he really wanted to know what I thought of his take on Strike Force Moratorium. And I had to beg off of responding to him because, uh, simply because it wasn't our Moratorium character, particularly the ones that that had carried over. Mm-hmm. I think Thompson. Yeah. You know, and and uh, he asked me, you know, well, did I handle toxin okay, and did I handle this? And I said, I, it's not a question of did you handle it okay. You handle it the way you handled it. But I had to be honest; they were not the characters we created. Right. Sure. Right. Yeah. Sure. And yeah. you know, he, he accepted that. You know, that that non-answer as an answer. <laughs> <laughs> it it did take him a while, and when we talked about it on the show. Uh, it seemed like they had about five issues where they were really struggling to find their way, trying to get, you know, trying to get into the groove of what Anderson and Gillis was doing. You know what I mean? And long transition. Yeah, yeah, there, there was a long transition. But by the time it reaches episode 27, Chris, would you say 27 was the uh, was 27 to Lima, he where he comes back and we hear his story. So that's. I think that's what Hudnall said in the letters page was like his official start to his era. Because he was spending, he spent issues 21 to 26 kind of trying to transition from what had come before to what he wanted to do. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 I, and, and I think he did his homework. I think he went back yeah. and did his homework because it actually, by that time, seven issues later, it started to feel like the characters that we were, that we grew up with. You know what I mean? It turned into like a love letter to what came before where yeah. the first few issues were a little, the first issue especially was quite shaky, but after oh, that... Well, Boy, we'll get into that. We'll in a get second. into that, yeah. But uh, but yeah, he started getting his footing here, and then it it's it simply became a love letter to the previous generations. It was really really well done toward the end. Yeah, well, maybe I'll get an opportunity to read the issues that Jim did. Uh, I mean, I I, I can't re- respond to him now because he's yeah, oh yeah, yeah, but, but if I'm in a place where I can read it as a separate series and appreciate sure. what it was without without reflecting back on where it originated. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I could probably enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
So we're going to switch gears. Now we're going to go to uh, our good friend, Joe Cabrera. And Joe Cabrera asked a couple of questions. So he said, uh, who do I have to kill to get reprints of Somerset Holmes and your run on Kazar? <laughs> <laughs> okay, the run of Kazar, they've only reprinted the first five issues. Right. And mm-hmm. I don't, they being Marvel Disney. Um, I don't know if they are going to reprint the rest of them or not. I haven't been informed about that. My guess would be they only reprinted those five issues because it was up for a for a trademark renewal. Okay. That if a if a trademark stays out of print for longer than seven years, um, the trademark is then use it or lose it. Nobody else wants to use the the name. Then IDW takes it. Yeah. (laughs) Right. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, But um, uh, so Kazar. I have I have some back issues in my files, and uh, if if anybody needs specific issues, I mean I I, I hesitate to myself up that because I'm not really in the book selling business. <laughs> there you go, Joe. <laughs> but you know if a, if a deserving fan has a particular issue or two that they would just they need to fill their collection or whatnot, you can shoot me an email at my on my website. <laughs> Uh, uh, or or even just you know you can go through uh, uh, where you can go for the Somerset Holmes book and that's where I'm going to go to now is that I have I still have oh a dozen or so copies of the Somerset Holmes uh, trade paperback ah, graphic cool. okay. collection nice. issues and it's available on my bookstore on mm-hmm. my uh, my my bookstore and that's I have a I have the the, the link here but if you go to my website brendandersonart.com and then click on the store uh, mm-hmm. under, I don't know, art, artwork for sale or whatever. There's a store. Click on that. You'll find a link to um, ordering Somerset Homes. And I'm, I'm, I'm asking $50 for them with a, a signature uh, or and a dedication if you want it. Or oh, cool. $50, um, a, uh, uh, a little remark sketch of Somerset Homes in it. Very cool. Oh, awesome. Very cool. Absolutely. That's the answer to that question. <laughs> oh, yeah, great. Uh, Joe continues. He said, I love Somerset Holmes, but back in the day, some people were disappointed the series didn't remain dialogue-free after issue one. You know, Shades of Wally. <laughs> he said, do you think it should have stayed that way? So dialogue-free. Well, it's not a question of what I thought it should stay as. That was the introduction to a character that had no past and no name. Right. Mm-hmm. And it was a pantomime more or less, uh, because she didn't know who she was. Of course, we couldn't continue that once she started to discover who she was. Sure. And unraveling the mystery. You can't yes. unravel the mystery with just pictures. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, I, I, I had no idea where Bruce and April were taking the character. Gotcha. And including, like, issue, the end of issue two, when they finally headed off towards uh, towards Hollywood, um, I had really no idea where they were going. It was issue three where you got the backstory, right, with the producer and the death of her daughter and all that. Um, so it was as much a mystery to me as was going on. So I, <laughs> I had no preconceived notions. I was just, you know, I thought opening the series that way as a as a as a wordless. Um, it was a it was a challenge to my ability to tell a story 
and imply sure. a lot of things that may be true or may not be true based on the visuals yeah. uh, just to kick it off. And, uh, and we finally get words more or less when she picks her name off the billboard at the end of the, of the issue. So I, 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 the, uh, the question. I, I would uh, I would challenge a uh, one of the you know the upcoming new artists in 2020 to try a dialogue free issue and try to make that work. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure uh, I'm sure that's a little bit harder than it looks. I think. Chris, what Big do you time. got? Big time. We have a uh, we have a question from John B up in Alberta. He asks if there were any plots, storylines, character ideas, or anything you can remember that didn't make the cut or didn't get approved. Hmm. Well, outside of the outside of the overall storyline, apparently not going to be able to go the direction we needed to go in for a full 50 issues. <laughs> um, the the compromise there was that uh, Peter knew that he was going to have to make some changes in it, and at the time through a whole bunch of, for a bunch of other reasons, I felt like I just wanted to leave the book right. because of the, the, the push pull, um, because the, the book was kind of troubled in its development from the very beginning that Peter wanted as much latitude as he could get, uh, within the Marvel strictures of, you know, monthly production. Mm-hmm. Right. And, um, it was established early on that, Carl Potts, our editor, kind of saw the book as a superhero book with science fiction overtones in its own science fictional universe Mm -hmm. and needed to be treated as a superhero soldier book against the bad guys. Well, Peter looked at it as a no, this is a super this is a a science fiction uh, genre. This is a science fiction book with superheroic overtones. Right. But superheroism is a bit different than what people are traditionally used to, which is why the costumes were all different. And, and, and there sure. was no flying thing like the X-Men costumes or something with an X right. on. The only thing they had in common was the little emblem mm-hmm. uh, on, on the uh, on them. And uh, beyond that, you know, it was uh, that was our approach. Well, if it's a superhero book with science fiction overtones, then you're going to have to tell the story like a superhero story. Right. Yeah. If it's a science fiction book that has superheroes in it, Peter felt free to tell the stories in different ways with each issue. Certainly. And then Marvel's, or actually it was Jim Shooter's dictum that the first five pages of every monthly issue had to recap the basic book within those five pages and introduce the the scenario, the characters all the major characters and their relationships to each other by by page six <laughs> of course. Yeah, I, I thought peter came up with some very clever ways you know like oh yeah the yeah. sesame street one you know where yeah oh yes they're the bad partians m is for more hurry they're here to save us <laughs> <laughs> that was super well done yeah mm-hmm. the creative the creative ways that they showcased their power as a team yeah uh, you the know tandem in the beginning just so yeah. that was hilarious yeah. Yeah. so um i don't think anything didn't make the cut it's or or get approved mm-hmm. because it was its own universe and its own thing gotcha it was no longer a part of the uh 
what was that what was that big Marvel event at the time? The new universe. New universe, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think I answered the question, or, or Peter answered the question, about how that was related and then not related to the new universe. Yes. But uh, so most things were approved, and we got a chance to do them. It's just that um, the sales of the book were pushing Marvel in a direction saying, I think we need to do something to get the sales up. Yeah. Even if you want to do yeah well you know you know what's funny you talk about you know pushing the sales and sales decline yeah you know just looking from an outsider just as a fan one of the things that i would look for would be actual you know support from the company it seemed like there was not a lot of you know organic advertisements yeah yeah, advertisement for the book like you know you would get one in the beginning like first four or five issues but sometimes you guys didn't even get mentioned in like the Marvel checklist in the book. You know what I mean? The bullpen page, yeah. They, they wouldn't give you a blurb. They didn't say what the book was about. That's like there was no active push. It's because we weren't part of Marvel. Yeah. We weren't part mm-hmm. of the Marvel universe. And, you know, you'll look back here. We, I produced this poster to advertise this at Comic-Con. You yeah. Know? Yep. <laughs> Simply because Marvel wasn't doing anything to promote it. And one of the one of the one of the re, one of the things one of the reasons that Peter and I decided to go and pitch this to Marvel if they were willing to publish it was that we wanted to get newsstand distribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that so that Strike Force Moratori as a new Marvel book could sit right next to the X Men and the Avengers. Sure. Absolutely. And the Fantastic Four on the newsstand, right? Mm-hmm. Right. So, okay, it's a new Marvel book with new Marvel characters. Well, when it turned out not to be part of the Marvel Universe and there was no chance of crossovers to into the Marvel Universe and it wasn't a part of the new universe, which they were trying to promote, um, Strikeforce Moratoria was, I think, very early on made direct only, direct sales only. Yes, yeah. exactly. It's only appearing in comic book stores next to the X-Men and the Avengers and all that. But because it was not part of the crossovers between the X-Men and the Avengers and the new universe characters, et cetera, et cetera, it was put over there next, you know, in this comic. Thought, yeah. And that the, the, the lack of exposure to our set audience, you know, or, or walk in audience that would walk into a thrifty drugstore and find a comic book rack that had this weird book called strike force moratorium on it and they read the first issue and they maybe not know what's going on but they'll get the complete story in that issue and then decide if they want to come back again that was completely lost when we had no newsstand distribution sure. but i can understand marvel's position there's a limited amount of space in a comic book store rack or a, especially in a drugstore rack or in a magazine store rack for comics yeah. and they not want strike force moratorium competing for sales space with the X-Men or any of the new universe characters they were coming up with. So they didn't promote it. (laughs) it No, no. And then they went direct sales, which, which baffles me because if you're aiming to sell a book at all, like you say, you need it on a spinner rack, you need it in that pharmacy, you need it in that drugstore. You know what I mean? And to take that away for a book that is already struggling in sales, just, you know, it's just like taking a bullet and shooting you in the head. You know what I mean? Well, Peter and I pretty Peter and I were kind of untested and, and naive when it came to thinking that the Marvel we grew up reading was the same Marvel we were trying to introduce a book to. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and I hear you. Fans that were that were our age when we were younger reading Marvel comics, yeah. we were hoping to latch into that that demographic. And sure. uh, times change, you know. Oh, the whole yeah. 
in in an up in an uproar anyway at the time. So <laughs> for sure, for sure. So <laughs> we continue on. So Logan nineteen ninety one he asked the post. Anderson and Gillis run is usually met with contempt. Now we're talking about uh, <laughs> specifically one issue. So the issue that directly followed you guys, boy, uh, you couldn't have asked for something that uh, is completely different. I think we'll say, Chris, would that, would that be an appropriate word to use? Oh, different, deflating, disappointing. A lot of D words. Yeah. Well, a, lot, a lot of D words. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yet save a couple of select issues. The book itself did manage to stay uh, at a certain level, a good certain level, except for the infamous issue 21, which set the bar for bad comics and by far the worst issue of the series. Did you read issue 21? He asks, <laughs> you know what? I probably did. Um, when, Woo. when, when Jim Hudnall wanted my opinion, mm-hmm. book, he may have had photocopies of okay. the with the lettering and everything on it. Like maybe maybe he had a proof, you know, sure. uh, printer's proof or something of it. And I I have some vague recollection of reading it and sort of and if it was indeed twenty one and it and twenty one was indeed what you are saying it was, I would not be surprised if that was the issue I read because <laughs> <laughs> Oh my I goodness. If if I can I'm gonna show you a picture of the Hordians, what they became. Oh so hopefully you can see this. Oh yes. yes. Yes, sir. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. The kitty cats. Did you know yeah. That, did you know about those throat sacks? What those? Oh were? no! I so you you alluded to that. I yes. was hoping that you were going to get there. Yeah, those throat sacks were like you know like um uh what do you call them? spring peeper frogs? You know those 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 frogs oh, yeah. that make <laughs> sound. Yep. They inflate their throats, and they compress the air to make the noise well the hordians don't have vocal cords well they have vocal cords but they don't have lungs Got they aspirate through sphericals in their bodies like ants or or uh, or insects mm-hmm. right so they don't have a diaphragm to force air across their their vocal cords and now i'm giving you some inside on hordian anatomy here awesome <laughs> they would inflate their sacs and then crush them down to speak Okay. So, ah. um, and you know, somebody mentioned about a TV series or a movie of of Strike Force Moratori. If they were to do the Hordians the way we did it in the comic, that would be an effect that would make their voices and their speech patterns like breathy and sharp and mm. and fierce and and rasping, you know, just to make them really alien. And that sure. was the purpose for those little throat sacks things. And and I think making them appear alien was definitely a job well done because, mm-hmm. you know, the, the giant and we, we thought they were. How can I say this? Testicle like, we'll say <laughs> in the beginning. You know what well, I mean? It, re- it really gave a grotesque look to these these beings. You know what I mean? Really cool. Mm-hmm. And and the it was not a mistake or by happenstance that they looked like testicles. <laughs> oh, okay. There we go. <laughs> Something I didn't get into with the interview, and that was <laughs> the way that Hordians reproduce. Oh, do tell. Well, each Hordian has the ability to incubate um, gametes, you know, fertilized fertilized pre-Hordians. <laughs> oh, gotcha, yeah. <laughs> and the way that happens is that one – I think they're – I think that they're either – I don't think they're male, female. 
I think they're okay. both. They're mm-hmm. hermaphroditic. But one has to deposit one zygote into the mouth of a third Hordian. Oh and then another one has to deposit the, the, the other part okay. into the mouth. And those throat sacs, that's like a womb. For oh. And the way they're born is that when they, they attach themselves inside as they develop. And once they're ready to be born, they detach. And the next time the Hordian inflates his sacs and forces air through his vocal cords to talk, they, they pop out. Okay. (laughs) Wow. And they land on the floor, and just like in the movie Alien, right? Where the alien pops out, they skitter off into a corner to develop into a hordy. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And they can take different shapes too. They can the they're not always human shaped. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. But the hordians have been around for a while. So they've adapted their their genetics to match human beings because that's the nature of the earth. Okay. If it was a completely different biome that they were that they were raping, they would be a completely different shape. But they would have circles and they would have you know that that whole thing. Oh, very cool. Very that? cool. That's awesome. They're disgusting all over the place. But very <laughs> oh, they are. That is uh, in, in, the era, yep. in the era of COVID. That, that is a, uh, a different thing there when you're reproducing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you got aliens as you, as you scream, you know. <laughs> hey, Chris, you want to hit us up with Mr. Josh Deck's question? Certainly. And Josh, Josh joins us from the uh, New Universe fan page over on Facebook. Yes, he asks, uh, would you have liked to stay on the series for longer than the 20-issue run, minus the ones drawn by uh, Mr. Will Spertasio, of course? And uh, he has always wished that you and Peter had stayed on the book for much longer than you did. Yeah, okay, let's see. I've got a bunch of images here. Oh, there we go. Uh, yeah, actually, I would have. Um, if If the sales on the book had been maintained mm-hmm. and we were able to well if, if that had happened then we would have some leeway some latitude for leveraging doing it our way sure instead of having marvel tell us you know well do this do this don't do that right. because it's not selling etc um oh of course i would have stayed with it until issue 50 mm-hmm. and at that point that was um uh, peter had told me that that was his plan Unfortunately, he told it to me because we were never likely to get there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, um, uh, So, yes, I absolutely. And actually, I I talked to Peter about that, too. And, you know, what what was in his head when I left the book? And actually, he was planning to stay on the book. Mm -hmm. He could find another artist that uh, met with his preference as well as with Marvel's, you know, with, sure. with Carl and with, with Jim Shooter. Unfortunately, any, any artist that Carl suggested was on his list, Peter wasn't satisfied with. Right. And, and any artist that Peter came up with was either not available or was not to Marvel's liking. Actually, I'll tell you, uh, uh, Thomas Yates was at the head of the list Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and Tom Yates is the artist currently drawing Prince Valiant for the for the newspapers. <laughs> yes, <laughs> not, not a bad artist there, brother. Certainly no. not. Certainly and not. 
I think he was working on Swamp Things, and he was doing his, uh, was it Time? Oh, what was the name of it? Time, not Time Tripper, not Time Stoppers. It was a time-traveling series he drew, he did uh, at that time. What, like, for, like a, yeah. a limited series? I think it was for Epic, yeah. Hmm. Was like, hmm. Time something. Time I Bandits? Think. Was that the... No, that wasn't Time Bandits. I think it, was, it might it was written by Doug Munch, I think. Hmm. Okay. I don't recall. But so anyway, yeah. The 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 short answer question, Josh, is that uh, yeah, I, I would have stayed with the book until Peter finished it. Certainly. And actually, you know that that said, Peter said, "What would you think about doing Strike Force Moratori as a standalone graphic novel using the basic concept, but we'll completely do it for an adult audience?" Mm-hmm. And yes, he had, please. <laughs> and he had a title for it, and I said, "Yeah, that that's something to consider for the future." Well, with all the um, all the to do that happened after the the Sci Fi Channel was interested in Moratoria as a series, and then it, and then Marvel contested the ownership of it, and that just sort of put an end to any any variations of it, at least for the time being. <laughs> sure. But, but you know, who knows? In, in the coming years, if Peter and I can pull something together that would be the story we would like to have finished up, if not told from beginning to end for Moratoria, yeah, that would be, that'd be, that'd be cool. Oh, fingers crossed for sure. Yes, um, yeah. uh, Mr. Deck follows up with, uh, if you and Peter had stayed on for a longer run, can you speculate or recall any ideas uh, on what you might have done with the story arc of the series? Well, I only have the vaguest knowledge from Peter, and this is years ago, mm-hmm. was that um, Blackthorn, Aline, uh, she was the key, her baby was the key for a cure for the mortuary effect. Wow. Okay. Ah. If discovered, and Peter wasn't even sure how he was going to end the series, on an up note where the mortuary could get powers and then not die and the horde would be defeated. Mm-hmm. Or if the necessity of giving birth to moratory children so that they would need to be sacrificed for a cure okay. um, would complicate, you know, the, the whole thing about sacrificing newborn children for the sake of the society they've been brought into. Mm-hmm. I think that was part of, and when uh, when Peter mentioned that, I would, I just felt heartsick that we were not given the opportunity to pursue the series, given sure. where it started and where it was going. That being the conclusion would have been just, you know, just a, a wonderfully fulfilling, even if it was down, you know, downbeat. But it was not going to be a totally downbeat thing because, as Peter alluded to in the actual ending, he did where. Um, Harold's recorder mm-hmm. is has been discovered and is and and this is the story of the moratory. Um, the that was upbeat in the sense that the earth, the people of the earth, were the ones that were going to be responsible for for defeating the horde yeah. because the moratory were just symbols. There's only so much they could do, and they may or, there may not be any need to sacrifice human beings to get these limited powers uh, at all. Sure. Hmm. 
that was sort of the message at the end of the 20 issues that we did. So in a way, there was an ending, and I, I'm very happy with those 20 issues, the way that reads as a story arc. Um, but the bigger story, the 50-issue story arc, um, would have been far more fulfilling for me, I think, if I'd been able to do that. Us too. Yeah, because <laughs> they, they do uh... – they do sort of kind of come up with a cure, we think, uh, but they use a different, yeah. uh, a whole different story beat to get there. And uh, it's left fairly nebulous until, what, the very last page of the book we discussed today. So it's a, uh, it's kind of kind of out there. But, can uh, I have a question? Um, yeah. Certainly. Which issue was the last issue of Moratori and the first issue of Electric Undertow? Issue 31, uh, 31 ended the monthly series, and then Electric Undertow was a five prestige format uh, mini. So, okay. uh, so yeah, it was sort think, of tacked on to the end of the Moratori series. Yeah. Which yeah. Has, has some kind of an echo or some kind of a. They show map. like some uh, two preview pages, I believe. They they ended the. So so issue 31 ends up, and everybody you know everybody survives. None of that that round of moratory actually dies. It's it's really strange, and everybody clinks glasses and celebrates, mm-hmm. and then it flashes forward ten, ten years. years. Yep. And they they give you two pages of Electric Undertow and say that it's coming out very soon. Yeah, oh. I think there was a six month gap or so between 31 yeah. and Electric Undertow number one. But uh, yeah, and uh, uh, uh Mr. Deck ends with uh. Asking, he says that his favorite costumes that you created were Viking, Blackthorn, and the Black Watch, and he wonders what character costumes were your favorite. Well, once again, like with the characters, I don't really have a favorite costume mm. per se, because each of the costumes had to be specifically designed for each of the characters. Yes. Sure, yes. sure. But the most, I think the 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 strongest, most dramatic. Uh, graphic costume was um, um, what was it? A light ray? Was it Lewis? The guy with the, oh, the radiant. Co- radiant. Radiant. Yeah. Radiant. Sorry. <laughs> 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 uh, uh, was his costume um, because it was it was sort of a variant of Havoc. Yes. Yeah, it was absolutely. And, and we wanted to have a character that was that powerful but whose costume would change like mm-hmm. habits did, you know, from black and white, black and white costume. Uh, Havoc would, you know, he would do his powers as concentric circles emanating from his solid black void of a costume, mm-hmm. which would lose its blackness when he was using his power. Well, the same thing was with um, uh, Radiant, was mm-hmm. that when he used his cuff power, to, the, those cuffs were to channel the power um, that was from within him. So I had to show a change happening in that. So you got those radiant lines. Radiant was his name. Yeah. So you got yeah. radiant white lines from the the, the, the mantle that he was wearing uh, on the front, flushing the black out of the costume, the more power he used. Uh, so as far as costumes, yeah, I kind of like doing him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, did, we like your version, too. Absolutely. And I have to throw in a, a bit of kudos here for the, the, the friends of mine who were costumers in San Diego at the time I was doing this book, who took it upon themselves to design their own moratory costumes Whoa. for for characters um, based on characters that I had um, um, drawn. Right? Wow. And so 
the I made those characters look like my friends <laughs> Neat. who had Very actually cool. together costumes. And How about um, that? one of them was uh, Toxin. Uh, that was Robin. And I think Wild Card was Pat, Patrick. <laughs> Love it. Wild and, Card is a show favorite. He is. <laughs> and, uh, oh, and, and I think he designed this costume. Uh, yeah. How about that? He's I a told, haberdasher. <laughs> I told him it's the rights to it if you gave it to me. He said, I don't care. So I made, <laughs> so I made Wild Card look like him. And he's, <laughs> That's cool. <laughs> and then, um, let's see, who was, uh, let's see, Bill. Uh, Brainstorm, was that his name? Oh, so, uh, Will DeGucci. Yeah, Will DeGucci, uh, Scatterbrain. Scatterbrain, yeah. Yep. Yeah, that was my friend Bill. Nice. Called, his name's William, but we call there him Bill. There you go. I bet he was Bill. Will DeGucci. Very cool. I love it. <laughs> Our next question comes in from Todd Bailey, and he asks, oh, this is a funny question, actually. He says, what's the deal with facial hair in the late 80s? We had Louis Armanetti, Will DeGucci, Guy Harding, Kima Tulima, all with mustaches. That's a lot of mustaches. <laughs> there, <laughs> there you go. He used to be black. <laughs> he used to be black. Well done. Very, very cool. <laughs> we we have a question from our good friend Jody, Jody Yarden here. Uh, he's got two questions. His first one is, uh, what are your thoughts on your time working on Rising Stars? That was a fun book. Um, it Thematically, it has a lot of similarities to Strike Force Morturi, surprisingly enough. But that was a book that um, uh, Joe Straczynski had been doing with, like, for the first 12 issues or something uh, with other artists. Sure. And I don't know what prompted him or Top Cow to contact me about drawing the book. I think they were just looking for artists to do fill-ins. And so... I agreed to fill-ins, and then Joe liked the fill-ins, so he said, do, do you want to be the regular artist on the book? And I like the concept. I like the whole the whole uh, idea of these alternative superheroes uh, in it. Um, I wish things had turned out better for the book as a series and Joe's relationship with Top Cow over it. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, my time spent on, on Rising Stars was quite enjoyable. Very cool, very cool. And uh, Jody also asks if you could describe the process of developing characters en masse for huge ensemble casts such as Strike Force Moratory as well as Astro City. Yeah, that process um, originated with Jack Kirby um, creating the Marvel Universe. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that Peter Gillis and I talked about when I spent the weekend at his mom's house um, you know, working out a lot of the stuff about Moratory, you know, what we each wanted was we wanted to create what's called a character pool. And Jack Kirby was so good at that. I mean, he oh, yeah. he created the X-Men out of the X-Men mutants pool. Mm-hmm. He set up a scenario saying, OK, mutants exist and these are them. The Inhumans is another character pool. Um, the New Gods is a character pool. Um, the, you know, he would, I mean, even the world of Commandy, the character pool was all those animal, those humanoid animals. Sure. 
And Kirby was really good at doing that. And Peter loved that aspect of all the Kirby books and the Marvel books and the DC books that we read as kids. So he said, the Strike Force Moratoria effect, the process, that's our character pool. Ah. Mm-hmm. And then we have the population of the Earth of human beings to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> so so there was a funny um it was a funny little scene what what with the dartboard oh that, that was 13 that was the uh the how how peter and brent um build and destroy strike force moratorium yes <laughs> oh here we go yeah issue 13 it's a, it's a backup feature mm-hmm. yeah yeah this is the there it is <laughs> that's the one <laughs> that's the thing and uh this is closer to the truth. <laughs> I love it. Than probably anything we might have said in interviews or whatnot um, at the time. <laughs> but this was this was this was great fun. You know, we oh, have to yeah. pick the powers. I like the uh, the the superpower is uh, the stocks yes, always. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well done. This, this is great fun. <laughs> So we have, uh, let me see, we have Mr. Hugh T, and he asked a question. Uh, he's, and we sort of covered this uh, with Mr. Hudnell, but he's speaking specifically about Mark Bagley, which was the artist. So he says, Mark Bagley was your successor on the book. Did he reach out to yourself for any direction or tips on character reference, alien tech, or any illustration, uh, illustration visual tips after you left? Did you have the opportunity to see any of his work on Strike Force Moratory and your thoughts? Well, Mark is a very accomplished artist, but uh, if he had reached out, the message never got to me. <laughs> oh, gotcha. I would have responded, you know. Gotcha. Uh, and um, as far as um, if I had an opportunity to see his work, I didn't really grant myself the opportunity to because right. I felt a little stung that the book was sure. not being uh, – wasn't doing it anymore, and I was moving on to other things at that time. And also, um, I was uh, I was I was having health issues at the time. We'll just keep it at that. Yeah, and yeah. the health issues were affecting my ability to draw, affecting me mentally. Uh, there was a problem with the uh, chemical pesticide exposure and all that kind of thing. And so oh. there was a there's a mental component to that. So my ability to think through things was rapidly declining at that point. So gotcha. I basically excused myself from Strike Force Moratory completely. And that's, you know, absolutely no reflection on Mark Bagley as an artist because I think he's a really good artist. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. Now, um, we have a question from Lancer Paul who says, as an artist at Marvel, describe how the Marvel creative process worked at the time. Was there a hierarchy in the way the jobs were distributed? Uh, did you as a creator get credit for your contributions, creations, or have any say in the process? Um, yes. Like I described earlier, um, uh, Shooter wanted new readers coming into an issue in the middle of a series to be able to grasp the issue mm-hmm. in the first five pages. Right. Well, that did, that did affect our creative process. And Peter did his best to accommodate that in different creative ways instead of it just being like a five-page introduction for every issue. Okay, so that was a mandate. So you guys were, yeah. that, was, that was, okay, gotcha. Mm. But, you know, 
as a mandate goes, you know, um, Peter creatively came up with solutions for what it was that we objected to about the mandate. Sure. Um, did we get credit for creations? Well, yes, of course. Yeah, as the creator, since since Peter and I were creating this as a separate entity from Marvel, yes, we absolutely got credit for it and uh, the creations. But when the when the time came when the ownership of the creation came into question, um, no, we didn't have much say in that process. <laughs> <laughs> they started flexing muscle then, yeah. <laughs> this was uh, this was before the creator-owned outbreak of the early nineties. <laughs> well, let's see. Yeah, I guess I guess so. Yeah. Well, but just when I mean creator-owned ownership, I mean it was around you know pretty well all the time. But you know when you talk about you know mainstream with the outbreak of image and different image, things like that, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, the different things that that happened from there, legend imprint and different things, you know, it's I would have loved to see you guys own Strike Force Moratory. I think bottom line, totally. I think that's what I, that's what I'm in, long ways of saying. <laughs> Peter would have loved to own Strike Force Moratory, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. So where does that sit? Like, you know, uh, ownership wise right now. Are you allowed to talk about that at this point? I I have nothing to talk about because there's been no movement. Gotcha. Um and the last time I communicated with Peter, he didn't mention anything. Gotcha. Um, and so it's, it's been left with he and his lawyer, the person representing us or him. Uh, I I don't have a dog in this fight because for half of Moratory's run, I was employed by Marvel most of the right. time. Yeah. I, under the, you know, work uh, there. Work for hire. Uh, well, Yes. Yeah, I was under their work for hire for material I did for them, mm-hmm. for their characters and all that. But because I was an employee with a with a with a page quota, and those pages were not Marvel pages, they were Strike Force Moratory pages. Mm-hmm. I sort of assumed that they were under the work made for hire for Marvel. Oh, okay. uh, gotcha. gotcha. Understood. But when it came forward that Peter had never actually signed a work made for hire agreement for the series as a whole, he was only writing the series. He was paid to write the series. Mm-hmm. That he thought, but that gotcha. was clear. Mm. And that's when that's when the conflict happened. Was gotcha. that, you know, Marvel felt they owned it. And Peter said, mm, show me the piece of paper <laughs> says, that I signed that says you own it. You show me that, you own it. Sure. Oh, uh, no. You know, it's mine. Yep. Mm. It got more money. Than you. <laughs> That's a true statement. I, so um, I did not have a creator's interest in the ownership of the property simply because of my employment status at Marvel at the time. So I just stepped back, and then it was whatever Peter and his lawyer could do to negotiate rights or a deal um and that hasn't happened yet so <laughs> fair enough i don't know there if it ever will. oh we hope we hope so we if, do uh, if, yeah. if disney marvel's listening free air strike force moratorium <laughs> hashtag please. free strike force what <laughs> you think about a tv series i think the sci-fi called uh a thousand days yep oh. Was that was that ever produced or was that just a, a pitch? I don't think that ever came out, but but that was what was uh that's what 
a lot of people thought was the take on Strike Force Moratorium, yeah. where I these, think it was. Yeah. And I and it it probably was trounced by Marvel turning around and saying, uh uh-uh, uh. No. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Close to something we think we own. So, <laughs> <laughs> I, tend to say, oh, I guess, you know, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> We got another question here from Jeff at the Telltale Mind, and he says, where does your tenure on this title, Strike Force Moratory, stand amongst all your other work to you personally? And he says, and another aside, he said, personally, I loved your Kazar and Astro City output. Well, my tenure on uh, Strike Force Moratory is... Um, it was my first attempt outside of creating my own characters and my own character universe when I was a fan. Mm-hmm. Uh, the opportunity to actually create uh, a new universe of superheroic, superpowered characters. Um, and as um, as truncated as it was, Strike Force Mortuary was a success in that regard because Peter and I together created a set of entertaining characters and good storylines for a universe that was bigger, but we just didn't get opportunity to add to it. Um, That was rectified in 1995 when I started working on Astro City with Kurt Busiek. Yes. That's been the same process and that's been going on for over 20 years. Yeah, sure. So um, Astro City sort of finished up where Strike Force Moratory started. Gotcha. 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 Yeah, I hear you. No, that's awesome. What, I, well, we have a question from Desert Kid here. It's a two-part question. And uh, the first one is, were you aware that Marvel gave Strike Force Moratories Earth its own designation in the Marvel multiverse? And that's Earth 1287. <laughs> and uh, also, did you know that there was a semi-recent story arc in X-Force called Dirty Tricks from, 19, uh, from 2014 that involved the Moratory formula? Mm-hmm. No, I was unaware of both of those. Yep, they're, 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 trying, they're trying to milk the, uh, the Strike Force fans. Boo. Boo are you, X-Force. <laughs> yeah, they're also protecting the trademark, once again. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. That's all that is. Yeah, you're 100% because I'm right. I'm not sure when what the time frame is for these particular, uh, okay, 2014. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't know. That's, that's about the right time when they would want to get yeah, the re-up it. Uh, Put the uh, yeah. put the claws in, yeah. We haven't forgotten about this. We still own it. <laughs> um, we're we're just your, hoping one day they slip up. What's <laughs> your guys' take on the Marvel multiverse Strike Force Moratory verse and also this uh, Dirty Tricks X Force episode? The thing of this this X Force one, they never actually outright say moratory, um, and they even change the We Are About to Die to. Like it's it's a much more convoluted take on that on that yes. phrase that uh, we played with for some promo art that's coming up, but I don't remember exactly what it was. Uh, and the the moratori or the moratori as they were are like these nameless, faceless sort of cipher characters here. It's more about getting the formula than anything. So I think it was. Uh, I would wager that most of the people reading it didn't get the reference. Uh, mm-hmm. But us seeing, you know, we saw Earth 1287 and we've been doing our research and we know all about Earth 1287. So it kind of jumped out to us. Yeah. But uh, 
I, 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 I like the fact that they gave it its own designation. So it's it's, a, on it's, its own. own it's yeah. it's its own thing, and it's separate. And it's fun, and that's the way we like it because it doesn't have to be intertwined with uh, the chaos that you know some of the Marvel books went through. So it's its own thing, and it's sort of left alone to be its own thing. And I kind of I kind of like that. Yeah, it's just sort of Marvel's version of Earth Two, and you know DC. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Okay, we're we're cool with that. Yeah. Next next question is from '80s Marvel fan. We're '80s Marvel fans. Yeah. It says, describe the sights and sound of the Marvel offices at the time. Who did you interact with while working there? And were there any bullpen stories that you can share? And was there any particular artist or creative personality that you enjoyed meeting or would still like to meet? Oh boy, there's <laughs> probably too many to go into. Uh, yeah. Except the highlights. Well, I, I met Bill Sienkiewicz. For the mm-hmm. first time there, when his was uh, shooter secretary, ah, okay, uh, and she she purposely well, she saw my work and and she purposely said, Bill wants to meet you, he wants to talk to you because you guys have a similar uh, drawing style stemming from Neil Adams, and he wants to talk to you and meet you. And I met him, and it was it was like we just we just off right off the bat, and. Um, in due time, we shared a studio together in Westport, Connecticut. Oh, uh, cool. With a third artist, Joe Chido. Mm-hmm. And I lived next door to Bill and Frankie uh, and roomed with Joe Chido in Westport for, I don't know, was it four years? No, no, oh, two wow. and a half years, something like that. Very cool. So I met Bill there. Um, <laughs> let's see, what's uh, other stories? Who did I interact with? Well, uh, Louise Simonson. One of the oh, yes. editors in the business, sure. As well as a damn good writer. Mm-hmm. I just recently, oh, uh, just as an aside, I just recently worked with Wheezy again on a, a Batman. Um, I don't know, was it a, a a Middle Ages version of Batman that was a toy tie-in? Okay. Oh, oh the He-Man. Oh one. yeah, those tar- He-Man. Yeah. 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 And I did the comic book that goes in with the toy. Very cool. Think. I've never seen a printed version of it, but but uh, Wheezy did the uh, script for that. Oh, just, very cool. And I'm still in touch with Wheezy after all these years. They're, they're good friends. Her and Walter Simonson. Um, who else did I interact with up there? Well, Chris, of course, an excellent graphic novel. Oh, yes. Um, but by the time, let's see, I moved to San Diego in 1983. Mm-hmm. And my second trip to New York was 1979 to 1983. Gotcha. So that was the time period where I was uh, up at the offices. Um, the only other notable thing was that during that time, um, there were Marvel bullpen volleyball games going on on Sundays. Um, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about that. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you've, if you've never tried to spike the net with Jim Shooter on the other side, you have to <laughs> <laughs> and there forget were, about it. There were there were two people, there were two players, two people who could consistently spike Shooter at the net. Oh wow! I mean, oh, who were they? <laughs> you know, they weren't able to do it all the time, but those two people were Jim Starlin <laughs> ah. and Archie Goodwin. Very cool. <laughs> And uh, considering how much older Archie was than Jim Shooter, um, 
Archie was in great shape. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Shooter, Shooter is known to be a giant, is he not? Yes. What, what's his, how tall is that guy? I think he's 6'7". Yeah, wow. Yeah, Man. and I think, uh, I think uh, Leonardi uh, is taller by an inch. Oh, wow. Leonardi is. Wow. I, I had no I, idea. I'll tell you a funny story. This is, this is about yep. those guys. But it was uh, at Comic-Con before it was at the convention center in San Diego. Um, these three personalities from comics were standing in a row. There was Al Williamson, mm-hmm. Shooter, and Rick Leonardi, right? All standing there in ascending order. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I'm standing there listening to, to them, you know, talk and all that stuff. And Annie Nascenti comes walking past us to leave. We were right by the doorway leading to the dealer's room. Mm-hmm. And she walks, but she, she's starting to walk by and she looks at the three of them together and she says, <laughs> it's a cloning experiment gone awry. <laughs> <laughs> and then <it> keeps walking. <laughs> That's hilarious. And everybody went, and then he just busted out laughing. <laughs> three tall guys that all looked similar. They all had the same kind of hair. <laughs> That's awesome. That's great. There's your story. Wonderful. We have a, a question from Mont Mills. And he asks, uh, "What's your uh, what's the biggest compliment you ever got that you ever received from your peers, and who was your hardest critic art-wise? And uh, and what is your advice to any artists looking to break into the uh, the comics biz?" Hmm. Let's see. Well, the hardest my hardest critic art-wise was fortunately for me Neil Adams. Yeah. <laughs> Neil Adams gave comprehensive critiques for those artists that he felt had some potential. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when he didn't see that potential being realized, he was not shy about saying so. And he he really uh, came in at key moments in my okay. development as an artist and kept me, you know, kept me focused on what the whole point was. <laughs> um, one of the biggest compliments I received from one of my peers was from Cat Ironwood. Actually, okay. when I was working on Somerset Holmes and then I think it was just after Somerset Holmes and, you know, Eclipse Comics finished up the last two issues of publishing yeah. Somerset Holmes. I was working on something else. and I can't even remember what it was, but Kat was looking at that, looking at the work and saying, you know what I like most about your work is that no matter what shape the panel is. Or what's in the panel, it looks like it's shot in 70 millimeter <laughs> movie format. <laughs> yes, I hear you. <laughs> like, wow. Considering mm-hmm. that I always approach comics as kind of like storyboards for a movie, that was that was a nice sure, compliment. Yeah, that is. And, and she's not wrong there. I mean, no. it, it is literally, that's how that's how it plays out on the page for us, you know, as fans. I mean, it really did play out that way. So that's, that's a true statement there, I guarantee you. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. And, and thanks to Kat for saying that. so i have another question this is from the new new 52 boy that's all we need (laughs) (laughs) yeah it oh okay so it says okay we might have accidentally already asked this question but it says we heard the inspirations for the original moratory were people or inspirations behind scatterbrain scaredy cat and toxin so you sort of you sort of covered that already 
Yeah, Toxin was my friend Robin, um, yep. who <laughs> Robin is now the president of uh, Comic Con. <laughs> oh, oh, sweet. How yeah, about when, that? Yeah, when John Rogers passed away, um, the she she took the reins. Hmm. Um, and let's see, Scary Cat. There wasn't really. I don't. I don't. Re- I don't recall uh, a real person being an inspiration for her. She okay. was the French. The French character. The, she was Pilar, right? She was the Hispanic yeah. or something. Yeah. yeah, I don't think there was. And Scatterbrain, as I said, was uh, was my friend Bill. Mm. Uh, in in <laughs> that's awesome. San Diego. Very cool. <clears throat> so we had those. Those were the end of our questions right there now. But uh, we wondered if you had just a couple minutes to do some rapid fire uh, profile game. And these are just literally just one to two word answers. Okay, I'm not sure exactly what the game is, but <laughs> okay, this is so a lot of the Marvel uh, comics at the time had what was called profiles. So they would profile and ask a bunch of ridiculous questions to some of the creative teams. Oh, okay, like like so, so, which just one? So, Monica, that those guys. Those just guys. just some just yeah, just some low hanging fruit about hobbies Pretty and different much, things, yeah. different things <laughs> like that. Sure. So we'll uh, you interested in uh, sharing sure. a couple share with us? Okay, sure. So, Chris, do you got the profile pulled up there as well? I do, I do. So and I'm going to start with uh, with my hobbies are blank. My hobbies are well, I have quippy ones like yeah. collecting information on my friends. <laughs> um, let's see, hobbies. I collect movies and television shows. Oh, on, cool! What's your favorite? Scanned on, uh, well, used to be uh, v- VHS and all that. So I, I have thousands and thousands and thousands of movies and TV episodes. Very cool. Um, and I'm assuming that it's like hobbies not related to work that I'm doing. Yeah, just anything. Yeah. Any anything. These are all open ended. Just one. Yeah. Yeah. One yeah. done. We'll, we'll leave it at those two. I collect yeah. movies and uh, I collect information on my friends. There you go. Awesome. <laughs> no, the single work that you are most proud of is. Oh, that's hard. I'm proud of most of the stuff. Um, that's the right answer. There you go. <laughs> it's easier to say the one I'm least proud of. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, well what's that? that? It was the uh, Punisher movie adaptation. Oh, uh, okay. Was, I did that for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> and, I got, and, I, and I got justly rewarded for it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. How about my pet peeves are? Hmm. Brain dead people. <laughs> <laughs> we know a few of those. We do. Uh, your place of birth is? San Jose, California. All right. My greatest accomplishments outside of the comic book field is? Oh, my family. My ah. wife and my, my son, Bryce, who's cool. now 25. Very cool. And, uh, and I will share this. My son is almost exactly the same age as, as uh, Astro City. Wow. Oh. Yeah. I was working on page four of the first issue of the miniseries, which is now called the miniseries of Astro City. Mm-hmm. And my wife came in from the bathroom and said, my water just broke. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. 
That is You're awesome. Uh, my oddest habit is <laughs> doing podcast interviews. <laughs> yeah, you're doing great. You're doing great. <laughs> uh, oh, you get the have, fun one here. Yeah. If they were making a movie of your life, who would you like to see play your role? <laughs> yeah. Um, who was the actor who played Toad in American Graffiti? Charlie Martin Smith. Oh, yes, yes. Yep. When I was younger, I would have said Charlie Martin Smith. There you go. Actually, go. actually at the age he's at now playing me now, that would that would work. There you <laughs> go. Great answer. But um, I would say now, if someone was to play me now, it would have to be the recently departed Wilford Brimley. Uh, <laughs> that's excellent. Only because he has such a screen presence, the way he looked. He yes, does. Oh, there's, yes. listen, there's no, there's no shame in being Wilfred Brimley, sir. Nope. No, sir. <laughs> no, the the reason I got into comics was I couldn't do anything else. <laughs> I had no interest in anything else. <laughs> Good stuff. How about the people who knew me in high school thought I was blank. <laughs> Probably pretty strange. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. The only, the only way I gleaned any normalcy was that my friend Frank Sirocco, you know his work, right? Mm -hmm. um, from uh, what was the uh, Alien Legion? Yes. Yes. Legion. Yeah. Well, I, I met Frank in high school, and oh, uh, cool. uh, we spent three years of high school together. And um, the only normalcy I was able to get in my high school was attaching myself to him. <laughs> <laughs> he was the cool guy. He liked the, he liked David Bowie and he liked Elton John. He liked you know uh, Alice Cooper and you know and I didn't know from that stuff. I liked Buddy Holly and, and Elvis and, <laughs> and the Beatles. Yeah, very cool. That actually that's... takes us right into our next question here. Uh, my favorite performers are. In like movies and television, oh, just stuff? just overall, any any, any entertainment, Anything. yeah. Um, I probably should have thought about. I should have read these questions <laughs> <laughs> before putting myself on the spot here. Um, well, I think that was that. That's one I'm just going to have to think about, and yeah. really that's don't cool. have any off answers here for that one. And this this one is the most lied about question on all the Marvel <laughs> profiles, where where people pick the the most elaborate book that they've never read. It yeah. says the last good book I read was blank. Well, I'm currently reading one I'm finishing up called The Parable of the Sower by Octavia Butler. He's actually Which, reading it, folks. There you go. Oh yeah, yeah. It's um, it's a great book. It came out in 1993. And it projects a dystopic future of 2024. And much, of the almost stuff, there. and much of the stuff that she's outlining happened four years earlier. Oh, boy. <laughs> oh yikes. Yeah. Um, and it's not just, you know, pol politics. It's social stuff. And, and it's, it's, it's eerie in how astute her uh, – uh, speculative powers were at the yeah. time, and uh, it's a it's a really great book. It's called Parable 
Parable of the Sower, S-O-W-E-R, by Octavia Butler. Okay. Um, but let's see, what else am I, I, I? Sometimes I have several things going at once. I've been reading graphic novels and things like that. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, how about the last good movie you saw? Well, we just saw Porco Rosso last night. Oh, okay. <laughs> Porco Rosso. Some Ghibli, yeah. Oh, it's... It's it's one of the most beautiful labors of love. Mm-hmm. We just lost Chris. Uh, um, I'm not seeing Chris anymore. <laughs> but I see you, Chris Christian. Yeah, I can see oh. you. I'm still yes. here. Can you hear me? Well, hopefully yeah, it'll come through. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. All right. All right. Still on. Um, so what was what was that last answer? Oh, Porto Rosso. <laughs> yes. Right. Um, the last movie I saw in the theater was The Rise of Skywalker. Oh, uh, what'd okay. you think? Thumbs up or thumbs down? Oh, I liked it. Yeah, yeah me too. Me too. Yeah. Satisfying and conclusion, I'll say. I've never been totally satisfied by any Star Wars film since the first one. Oh, yeah, but of course. But that, that was when it was just a standalone by itself. Um, yeah. Every other film since then has been a, an attempt and usually a successful attempt to strike lightning again, but <laughs> yep. at the risk of just telling the same story over and over and over again. So we finally got with the rise of Skywalker, we got to see an ending. Yes. A payoff, which was, which yeah, was great. A payoff. And I, I, I was not disappointed in the payoff. I thought it was all right. Very cool. <laughs> well, we'll tell Mark Radlich that Chris. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hit him with the next one. We only got three more. Four more. Yes. Uh, the biggest influence on uh, the biggest influences on your work include. Um, Norman Rockwell, Hal Foster, Alex Raymond, Jack Kirby, Neil Adams. Uh, Norman Rockwell. Did I say Norman Rockwell? Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. He's worth he's worth repeating. Oh, definitely. And, uh, a whole a whole uh, pageantry of American illustrators like Austin Briggs and, and uh, John Montgomery, I, I mean, Flag. Mm. Uh, um, like I said, I'm sort of an artist artist. I'm, I'm sort of a, oh, yeah. a renaissance artist. <laughs> um, the influences were some of my art teachers, uh, Jim Smitty Smith, from uh, Foothill College, I, I I took some classes from him. He was teaching anatomy and drawing classes that I audited, and I learned a lot from him as a teacher. Um, Maynard uh, Maynard Stewart uh, was my drawing teacher at San Jose State University, mm-hmm. and he was also the teacher for um, Michael Whalen the uh, painter oh, yeah. that does science okay. fiction book covers. Um, Michael Whalen was a recent graduate of uh, Maynard Stewart's at the time. Mm. So, yeah, those are, those are the highlights. Those are, some, those are some good inspirations, I'll say. For sure. How about, what is your greatest unfulfilled ambition in the comics field? To create my own... Brent Anderson character universe. <laughs> yes, we will I, buy that. We will. Which I'm in the process now of putting together. See, I, I, I've looked at my career 
in three stages. The first stage was to get into it and have the opportunity to create character pools uh, like Moratori and Astro City. Um, just get the opportunity. And then the second stage was to have like a personal life where I could have a family mm-hmm. and then develop uh, my own projects, my own car- my own series and all that, that I had started before I became a professional. And I did create my own Brent Anderson universe before I became a professional. And there are dozens and dozens. I, I, I've, I've told this story a lot of times, but in three and a half years, I produced over 60 10-page-plus comic books and created probably two dozen characters for these these books. Yep. And this was all before I became a professional. So the first phase in my career was to become a professional and do some of this creation. Um, the second phase was to continue it and build on it and create stuff of my own. The yes. third stage is now what I call my retirement years, which will be working mostly on my own stuff or in collaboration with uh, uh, other people outside right. of the comic book industry as a whole. Gotcha. You know, like the, the since since Marvel's now owned by the mouse and DC is owned by AT&T, I don't know that I'll be spending much time working for either of those companies. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. So, for sure. I will make a comment too that I'm very. I have high hopes for 2021 because um, there's a publishing packaging deal being put together that I may be involved in oh. uh, mm. with a publisher I can't name right now. Uh, sure. Wow. But oh, we're, we're interested. Very cool. Yeah. Opportunity for me to publish a lot of this stuff I've been working on for over 40 or 50 years. <laughs> Well, if you need any, if you need anything plugged or shared, sir, you know, we can come to us and we'll, we'll gladly help you out. No every, problem. every time. Yes, for sure. Um, now the, uh, the worst part of my job is <laughs> loaded. That's a loaded question. Hang it in the air here. <laughs> is. That's the question. Yeah. The wor- the worst part of your job is oh my job <laughs> yes part of your oh no no <laughs> this oh, okay. is a pleasure <laughs> yes this is the best part of our okay. jobs <laughs> all right so the worst the worst the worst part of my job yes sir. yeah it's been trying to hit those deadlines <laughs> and having books go on hiatus and be pulled for not reasons having to do with me not meeting deadlines necessarily, but when that ha- would happen, I would just, you know, like I haven't, I haven't fulfilled my contract. I haven't done it. Did you ever then, miss, miss a deadline on moratory? Because I, I, we saw that uh, Will's Portacio filled in a couple issues. Whereas yeah, that was a, that was a time. But like I said, I was having uh, um, health issues at the oh, time. Oh, okay, gotcha. Yeah. So my, my production capacity had been quartered. Gotcha. Um, and it's it's virtually impossible to do 23 pages month in month out. That's essentially a page every three quarters of a day yeah. in a month. Wow. I was I, I was quartered, so which meant I could produce one quarter of that in a month. <laughs> yeah. <sure. laughs> so so good That's old right. Wilson and and um, I think I think um, Scott Williams did an issue too. 
Yeah, and he was he was also finishing out my layouts. Okay. Oh, gotcha. A bit more at that point, also. Gotcha. That that makes sense. The tightness that I was, but you know, like I said, Scott was a good good finisher. Sure. Yes. Two two questions left, and this one's pretty simple. When nobody's looking, I like to (laughs) sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, good plan. And wrap her up, Christopher. The what final one here is uh, the one thing I really want the world to know about me is. Hmm. I don't know. I tried my best. Yeah. There you Absolutely. go. <laughs> yes. Whatever you see coming out of me, I'm doing my best. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And that's cool. good enough very for cool. us. Yes. Well, Brent Anderson, let me thank you very much. Um, I know that that we bugged you endlessly with these emails, <laughs> and we could not be more than happy to have you on this show today. So uh, we're going to be sharing this out. But before we let you go, why don't you tell us what you're up to today? Is there anything you got going on that you want to share with our listeners? Where can they find you? Well, lots of things, actually. I'm, I'm working right. on what's still considered a super secret project with Kurt Busiek. Uh, a graphic novel, mm-hmm. and I posted a couple of images here and there just out of context, and which I will be doing uh, in the future. I'm working on page 57, I think, right now. Oh, it'll wow. probably like you're, you're super into it. It'll be about twice that length. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. That's one of the projects for next year. Um, the other project is an ongoing project with my wife, Shirley Johnston, called El Aguar Origins, El Jaguar. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a personal project that she and I are working on. I'm about 114 pages into that one. Wow. And if you go oh. to ljaguarorigins.com, um, there's a website. And you can check out all the artwork that I've produced for wow. that. I, I've been posting it up to the last couple of pages. I haven't posted those yet. Very cool. And then I'm... I'm working on an art commission, which I'm not going to talk too much about it until I finally nail it down, but I'm reworking a story I didn't get a chance to draw for Kazar. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's it's not a Kazar story, but mm-hmm. it's, it's this new story and new characters are inspired by it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm... I was recently commissioned by somebody to produce it as a comic book story. <laughs> How about that? <laughs> so I'm working on that. Um, and uh, and then I'm working on a comic strip, a daily comic strip that I, I call You Can't Always Get What You Want. And it's mm-hmm. basically at life in America through the eyes of a comic book artist or at least the personality of a comic book artist. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> It's it's about family life and you know slice of life kind of thing, but in a fictional fictional view. Um, and I've also been opening my studio up to uh, commissions again. Um, nice. You know, during COVID lockdown and all that, uh, sure. the company I was working for stopped paying me because of the cash flow issues with uh, Diamond Distributors. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Material that. So they're their budget for things in spec speculation dried up, but it was put in put on hold for a yes. few months. Sure. And so 
I did two things. I went on unemployment. <laughs> to pay, the, pay the bills. Yeah. And uh, for the first time in my career, I opened up what I called a month of Sundays in June, where I opened up every day of the month to a commission. Oh, and cool. Very I cool. successfully filled the month with commissions. I bet, yeah. And, and these are traditional traditional pieces done traditionally, not, not digitally, because I've been digital for over 10 years now. Wow. <laughs> so I've gotten back into the, the sketching stuff. And, and on my Facebook page, uh, Brent Eric Anderson on Facebook, um, I post these just to share the, the, the sketch pages. Very cool. Awesome. We'll definitely check it out. Yeah. Very no. cool. And I've gotten back into writing again. I'm, I'm writing prose fiction, short stories. And I'm also developing one of those character pool stories um, that I started back in 1975. Oh, wow. Oh, looking forward to that for sure. It's either going to be a series or a graphic novel or a series collected into a graphic novel. I just don't know. Oh, very cool. Sure. No, we're definitely very, very looking cool. forward to that. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. totally. Totally. <laughs> well, <laughs> is that they have anything else to share, Brent, or will that be it tonight, sir? Well, actually, um, there's a fundraiser currently going on at the Cartoon Art Museum in San Francisco. Yep. Yeah. The Scrawloween, Scrawloween fundraiser. Oh, cool. Tell us about it. Um, well, I'm going to show you an image here. Let's see if I can... Okay, now if I do a screen share, I have to go over to um, speaker view, right? I think so. And then if I share the screen, are you seeing the image? Not yet. Not yet. A second, I'm going to change my layout to see if we can see this. Oh, oh, something happened. There we go. I see it. It's perfect. Oh, Strike Force, it's Harold. <laughs> now, okay, so you're, you're you're recording this. Anyway, yep. this was this was uh, a sketch that I did when I was designing the logo back before the book even came out. And after we had just you know worked through it and everything, um, this was my my layout. But just as a joke for Carl, I did this this caricature this this mort druckerist character caricature of viking um <laughs> challenging Very the cool. aliens and the <laughs> illusion portians got no mommies <laughs> that's <laughs> hilarious and since this is um this was scheduled for october 9th mm-hmm. in the scrawloween mm-hmm. um that was when this was going to be made available for a $5 donation to the Cartoon Art Museum. Okay. That if you want to make a donation to the Cartoon Art Museum and their Scrawloween of $5, just go to their store, go to their website and go to their store um, and scroll down on what's offered and you make your donation and then they will send you a, oh, excuse me, a high resolution scan of this image. Oh, love so it. Very image. cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and, and we'll be and we'll be sure to share all this in the uh, in the show notes as well. Okay. And Absolutely. if you need sent to you in the form of a JPEG or something like that, I can do that. Oh, by yeah. all means. Yeah, Absolutely. by all means. We'll share it around. Absolutely. Okay. And then let's see. Um. And then I have. Let's see, let me go back to. Okay. Let's get this back. 
excuse me. <laughs> no problem. Junk. Okay. <laughs> I have in my possession. Oh, it's gold. I have in my possession. Oh, the emblem. A whole bunch of these stickers. Yes. These were, these were produced back when Astro, Astro City, when uh, Strike Force Moratorium was coming out. And these were printed up to advertise it, you know, at Comic-Con. Like you said, like we said, you know, Marvel didn't do much promotion. Yeah. So a bunch of these were printed up by some, somebody printed these up for me. Oh, wow. And I still have a whole bunch of these. Oh, man. So, so what awesome. I'm going to do is I'm going to offer these for $6 if you make mm -hmm. a $6 donation to the Cartoon Art Museum and then mail me a... Uh, self-addressed stamped envelope. Mm -hmm. I will send one of these to anybody that makes a six-dollar donation to the Cartoon Art Museum. Oh, that's oh, awesome! Oh yeah, and, definitely, absolutely. I have the information here, and I'll email you this information so that Perfect. you can for sure whatever you need to include it. Yeah, okay? we'll definitely, we absolutely, we'll share. Wonderful. That. All right. Because right. I, I don't know what I'm going to do with these things. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we. I, I know I'd like one. I don't know about you, Chris. Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, That's great. <laughs> Six bucks S A S E, and you got it. <laughs> Sounds good to me. Awesome. Very, very cool. Well, Brent, thank you very much for your time. Thank you for putting up with the numerous emails yes. and the back and forth and the deaths in the family and all on all these snake bit things that went yeah, into this interview. I hope. Yeah. No, yeah, everything. Everything's great. The family's doing well, but. Uh, but yeah, so uh, no, we're more than grateful, and you know what? Our listeners are going to be super happy with uh, with what we had here this evening. So, uh, Chris, without further ado, you want to take us home, baby? Yes. Uh, to, you, just to repeat what uh, Mr. Bailey said, thank you so so much. Um, we never thought when we started this we'd be uh, legitimized in such a way, and uh, <laughs> it really really means the world to us that you would uh, take time out of your day and uh, and spend time with us. Uh, talking about something from a very long time ago. So it means it means the world. Absolutely. And I'm sure our listeners uh, will very much appreciate this too. So I can't think of a better way to wrap up our, our main run here with our 31st episode, talking about the 31st issue, the final monthly issue, than talking to one of the creators of this franchise we hold so dear. So Absolutely. thank you so, so much. My and, pleasure. Uh, and, uh, yeah, unless we have anything else, I think we can probably uh, just take it home. All right. Well, All right. in touch. And you, guys, you guys have made it a pleasure. And I really <laughs> Thank you very it. much, Brent. Thank you right. so much. I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you so much. Take care. Have a great evening. Bye. Bye-bye. Oh, man, how cool was that? <laughs> that was great. Oh boy, yeah. That's I mean, before stuff. before we before we cut to the interview, you'd said something about uh, we never thought that our little show would uh, w would get any sort of a a profound event like this, <laughs> and yep. it's uh, it, it's it's just awesome. It it feels like uh it feels like a real achievement and uh, and validation, and it means so much to us that Brent would uh, take time out of his schedule to chat with us. Uh, so. Thank you so much. Uh, it's it was amazing.
Um, oh yeah, it was. And, uh, you know what? Uh, I, I don't think folks and our listeners, uh, understand how much that I've actually bothered this man to be on the show <laughs> <laughs> from day one, September day... 23rd, 2019, the first <laughs> day the show came out, you sent him an email <laughs> and, uh, man, no, I, I can't thank you enough, Brent. And, uh, anytime, uh, you have an open invitation, sir, anytime you want to pop back on and chat with us, uh, we'll be more than glad. So, uh, big, big thank you. And, uh, I'm sure the fans of our show, uh, you know, are just going to dig the heck out of this. Awesome. Absolutely. But with all that said, we got a comic book to discuss today. A oh, final yeah. comic book to discuss today oh so, i think i think uh, darth vader said it best when he said no <laughs> yeah i know i know it's i know true. now this is strike force moratory number 31 and this bad boy had a july 1989 cover date the story is called the bitter end it's uh. written by james d hudnell with pencils by john calamy so mark bagley is taking this last issue off um because he has a lot of pages to draw yeah <laughs> he's uh he's knee deep in the in the next stanza of strike force morator the electric undertow yes his dance card is full uh we got inks by carlos garzon letters phil felix colors max shield assistant edits by mark mclaren and we don't usually mention the assistant but uh because they're not listed in the credits but we're going to be learning a fair bit more about Mr. McLaren today. He's and going on profile. Sure is. Uh, edits Carl Potts, Chief DeFalco, cover price, buck 50 US, two can 50p uck. And uh, according to Mike's Amazing World, this one went on sale March 7th, 1989. Very cool. And uh, we have a solicit, which uh, doesn't really spoil everything. It's actually just a repeat of the last one. It says, will the moratory seizure? In worldwide stability or a global civil war, which is uh, the last sentence from the last solicit. So there you go. <laughs> well, we got ourselves a cover, Christopher. We do. We got ourselves a cover. So if you're if you're taking a look at the cover, is, is does this one stand out as like being super cool to you? No. I, don't, I don't know. I I don't know if this feels like an adequate last issue, but uh, uh, anyway. Not, and it's kind of ugly on top of it. Yeah, it's kind it's kind of ugly. So it features the wind. Trademark the wind. Trademark we cannot, the wind we, can, yeah. we we cannot we cannot forget that Marvel tried to trademark the wind, but anyway, <laughs> they did. As we mentioned in glorious detail last issue. Anyway, we see this issue, we get Dan the Scan and he's getting his ass handed to him by the wind. And you know what uh I don't know. I'm not sure if this sends sends this book off on a goodbye type of cover, but uh, no. you know, if I'm picturing a last issue, I like I like to picture like something like uh, issue 20. You know what like I mean? 20. Like a nice yeah, yeah, like a nice tribute montage of all the past moratory or you know, some some sort of homage to you know the past or something. This just feels like honestly, it just feels like a splash page from the middle of the book. I don't know. Totally, hundred percent. Yeah. If you're going by a, a spinner rack, or, does this inspire you to buy the book? What do you think? No, no. And, and you know, if, and, the, and if you were like looking for this book, even right now, like in the back issue bins or the cheapo bins, the 50 cent bins or whatever, and you found issue 31 without knowing what it was, you'd, you'd continue looking for issue 32 and 33 and 34 because this does not look final in any way. It just feels yeah. so like you mentioned, it feels like it feels like they they refigured a splash page from the inside. It's really strange, and a, yeah. and it it's a it's a hallmark of the Hudnall run, to be quite honest with you, because yeah, a lot of the covers, 
were just inconsequential. Like, I mean, they, they seem like a like a panel or a splash page. Just it doesn't. Season. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's literally nothing significant on this cover. Like it doesn't say it's the last issue. There's no, you know, it says last stand, but, you know, that doesn't count. Let's be yeah. honest. And I got to talk about like the, the costume design. I don't know who's oh. responsible for the costume design. We will find that information out, but, uh, mm-hmm. you know. Hopefully it's not Brent. Brent, if you are, uh, this will be this will be the one nail that I'll throw at you. <laughs> the wind suit uh, is 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 kind of lame, man. Yeah. And of course he's got uh, you know, and and another point of interest here. So Dan the Scan's scanner suit, this thing changes like every single issue it seems like, and we it got yet like an... unstable molecules or something. It looks <laughs> yes. different every time we see it. Every single time. I mean, uh, he went from like a human barcode to like a fuzzy barcode to like <laughs> static to just like a set of stripes. It's yeah. really, really odd. But anyway, we got another variation. And then we get Revenge, who's coming up on the backside there. He's going to try to help out his boy. And I finally figured out who this guy looked like. He looks <laughs> like good old Star Fox from the Avengers. Yep. And you take a look at Star Fox. And you take a look at Revenge Suit, it's it's the same suit. Just <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. You know, uh, one thing I will say about the cover, though, I absolutely love the corner box. So this time it features Lifter. Mm-hmm. But but to use the space properly, it all fits. Like, it would be yeah. a good poster or an image if you're just spotlighting Lifter. And I think they, you know, it's by far my favorite corner box of the entire Hudnall run, for sure. But, yeah. Uh, I'm almost not really convinced that it's not a repurposed Anderson deal, honestly. I don't know, <laughs> but we'll see. That's funny. Um, the uh, the costume here for the wind, trademark the wind. Oh boy, uh, it's like I think I figured out where he came from. I think he came from parts unknown. I think he hails from parts <laughs> unknown here, and uh, he's a disciple of distrusity. Yeah, he's on the way to the Sky Dome, brother, oh, to get. <laughs> oh yeah. The rocket fuel with the rocket engine and the oh boy! But uh, past the cover, we open the book and uh, we open with wait a minute, it's our old friend Fishface, old Vax One Seventeen in the flesh. Well, they're gonna pay him off, thank I God. That and uh, looks like he's gonna be narrating a great deal of this final issue uh, in the form of a, a report to his superiors, which is a pretty clever way to do it. Well, I and, always thought first when I saw that character, you know, that fish mm-hmm. face in that cool suit, I'm like, man, he would make a good narrator. <laughs> <laughs> Said nobody. <laughs> Absolutely. Now, this starts here with him catching everyone up on everything that's gone down. And he stood in like this disgustingly fleshy space, like a room that's made of flesh. And uh, a weird like brain sucker looking alien thing slithers down and from the looks of it starts sucking on. Ah, I actually like the alien design here. Like it actually looks alien, okay? It, does. it doesn't it, does. it doesn't look like uh antiseptic John Callamy work. <laughs> yeah. This looks really good. Like it like it has a really, really organic feel to it. I think mm-hmm. that's that's what I'll say. And it's got like sure. I, I you get a good vibe for Vaxian tech here. Now the yeah. brain sucker thing, which is which is pretty cool because you almost see this type of thing in James Cameron's avatar. And it mm. and they have these little tendrils that come out from the the back of their ponytails or whatever and they attach to each other so it's a similar thing where you know you're getting communications you know through through these organic things but uh if i'm taking a look at an artist who would design something like this this almost looked like like i can almost smell the onions now it's almost ditconian you know what i mean almost it's almost has a ditko vibe to it. i agree i agree for sure now let's get the skinny here on what vax is uh selling now 
Vax117's done his research on the Earth, with a particular focus on the current world government, which is, of course, the Padilla. Focusing even further down on the leader of the Padilla, fake-ass Lamont, who, along with his associates, just pulled off the assassination of Aunt May. And here is where it gets weird. Back in the not-so-distant past, Lamont's well-endowed bedmate, if you remember, we, we did point her out because... They made it very clear that we wanted they, they wanted us to see this woman. Oh, yeah, um, we saw her. We sure did. We find out here that this well-endowed woman was replaced with a genetic construct. <laughs> what? Yes, and this construct implanted a psychic program into Lamont in order to influence his actions up to and including the assassination of Aunt May and the attempt to pin it on our mortuary strike force. Man, man, did it isn't me or the day take like the super long way around explaining this one. You know what I mean? Oh boy! So they they make his girlfriend or his uh, love interest that's on the bed there uh, a genetic construct, and then and he's LMD, implanted with yeah. a psychic prod, a you know a psychic implant. Then he masterminds the assassination of Aunt May. I mean, my God! Mm. I mean, when in trouble, blame it all on the genetic decoy. I mean, woo, works every time, baby. <laughs> but, uh, you know, maybe Lamont was like, uh, the only thing I could come up with, with, you know, when you think about Mark Bagley being associated with this, I thought Lamont was like Peter Parker's decoy parents, too, while he's at it. Oh, you know yeah, what I mean? The, the Red Skull LMDs. Yeah. Yes. Hell, why, <laughs> why not? I mean, you know, it makes sense then why they killed Aunt May. I mean, that's the only explanation. That's the only thing I can put out there to the universe. <laughs> this, you know, I, I I liked hating Lamont for being, you know, a jerk. Uh, but here it almost exonerates him. Yes, this is no good. But boy, did they go the long route. Or this sounds like a super believable, uh, you know, uh, excuse. Well, my, you know, my my girlfriend who I'm having sex with is a genetic decoy, and she implanted. I mean, this is days of our lives ish right here. This is, is. this is John and Marlena Stefano type stuff. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know that uh, that like psychic programs were also STDs. But uh, you learn something <laughs> new every day. Well, there's different ways of implanting stuff. I guess Lamont figured out another way. VD is for everybody. Um, now, Vax <laughs> it's free. Our, it is. Uh, Vax gives our last quick and dirty on what it means to be a moratory. Of course, humans metagraphed with superpowers, which, in case you haven't heard, will kill them inside of a year. And uh, Vax even knows all about the killer moratory and how two of their number are currently out for revenge. Not not the character revenge, just, you know, vengeance as in, like, the concept against the Padilla for lying to them about a potential cure. Ah, I see what this is. You know, clear, <laughs> clearly what this is in reality is that we've completely forgot about the vaccines and their storyline. <laughs> <laughs> now we figured out we're being canceled, so, uh, you know, we got to shoehorn them in some way, and they just says, oh, well, uh, we don't really have a spot for them, so why don't we just get them to narrate? <laughs> It reminds me, you know, now this is this is one of these things that I've, you know, I've, I've taken therapy for and, you know, because because I always picture myself as, as the leading man as a kid. Don't don't ask me. I, I know people <laughs> would, would have would have their own things, but there was a play and it was the Nutcracker. OK, mm -hmm. this was this was grade one and I'll never forget it. I thought for sure that Chris Bailey was going to be the Nutcracker. Of course, my teacher was just going to instantly make me the head of that play. But no. Guess what I got, Chris? Hmm. Guess what I got? I got the role of boy number two. Not even a Ooh. name. Boy number two. <laughs> and it was like being in a Christmas program, just like this vaccine storyline. And the only thing that I got to say was, look, presents. <laughs>
I had to extend my hand, but by God, it was the best. Look, presents. Now you can picture me holding out my hand, pointing towards presents. But the only thing, yeah, but I was so distraught. But my parents were cool. They got me like this super Playmobil little mini set. So for my efforts. Oh, very but, cool. Uh, you know, they, they, pra- they <laughs> praised me off for my stellar effort. But it was just like this vaccine storyline, you know, completely forgotten about, <laughs> shoehorned in, just like boy number two in the Nutcracker. So anyway, oh, I digress. I- I, I, I remember in third grade we uh, we put on a production of Grease and uh, oh yeah All right. I was sure I was going to be one of the T birds you know I, I really thought I was going to be uh what were they Sunny Duty and Putsy or whatever the hell their names were <laughs> I thought I was going to be one of them but uh no I was I was guy with guitar and uh, oh. I, was, I was part of the uh, the school dance I was playing a guitar. Uh, they did do a like an understudy version to make us not all feel like losers and I was a T bird for that. I was putsy, but, uh, yes, but yeah, I was, I was man with guitar. So, or so between, between, yeah. So those are forever our names, guy with guitar and boy number two. I think that's that's our, that's our new tags. (laughs) (laughs) No, back to the story from here, we shift scenes to the good guys who are now about 10 miles out from Cherokee mountain. If you remember last time they got on the railway and they're heading to the mountain to uh, try to save poor aunt May. Now, Inside, Lamont is watching the monitors in his office while a pair of handlers try to get him into the mountain's panic room. Lamont isn't quite as cucumber cool as he was at the land of last issue, however. Uh, You see, Trademark the Wind was supposed to whoosh in, kill the old broad, and whoosh out. But here's the thing. Trademark the Wind doesn't look like he's planning on leaving anytime soon. At least not while there's still a single person left breathing in the mount. Yep. It looks this like boy, old, this 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 boy's gone rogue. He has gone rogue here. So it looks like old TM the wind slams more and more heads into more and more walls. I mean, what can we say? Dude's found a system that works for him. <laughs> the wind has actually become somewhat of like a almost like a final boss of the book. For you sure. know what I mean? There's no big dust up with the horde, which you figure would have been in the last issue. Nope. There's not even a conflict with the vaccines. No, instead it's like almost like a, a Mega Man villain from level three, <laughs> the wind and Man, it's just strange. I don't know. I, I just don't understand. It feels like um like latter day Final Fantasy uh entries where like you're building up to this one big battle with the big bad and then you kill the big bad and it's like, wait a minute, no, the real bad guy is this thing you've never heard of, and you spend like five <laughs> hours leveling up to fight it. It's like okay. hilarious. <laughs> now back outside, our moratory arrive on the scene. Our man Dan the Scan listens in on the guards and learns that Aunt May has already been assassinated, probably by having her head bashed into a wall. Like you would. That's, like that's, you would. How, we, that's how we kill people, head that's bashing, two walls. On, on Earth 20, uh, 1287, heads into walls. Um, <laughs> that, that should be a t-shirt. We had a, always, always be in an open room, people, with no walls. You'll survive. <laughs> Heads in the walls. That that'll be a a Chris and Chris T-shirt at the uh, at the uh, at the Etsy store or whatever. Uh, <laughs> I love it. Now Revenge figures that they're as good as cooked at this point, but then comes around to the idea that if one of the killers were to turn on new PM Lamont, they might still have a chance. And they uh, change into their work clothes right in front of one another, so not a lot of shame being shown here. And uh, they try to plan their next course of action. Yeah, boy, this is this is a co-ed locker room for sure. I mean, 
it's interesting. You see the girls like changing and they're like in the super front of the panel. You know what I mean? Uh-huh. Like Oops they're out. they're Yeah. They're not being subtle at all about, uh, you know, wanting to get these girls, you know, front and center with their girls out. So uh, mm-hmm. meanwhile, the the dudes the dudes are in shadows and in the background. They're almost yeah, like we, background noise. So. We don't want to see none of that. No. <laughs> oh boy, man. Just then, our invisible friend Tam Von Ock flies in overhead wearing his Air de Gucci's, and uh, the ghost makes his landing and listens in on the guards. He learns that Aunt May's been killed and immediately suspects that TM the Wind was behind it, and he figures he'll just add the wind to his list. <laughs> it was like at the last issue when we left there was like only four legit moratory left and i still have to go with like tam van ock is probably my favorite moratory out of everybody that's here you know what i mean yeah. i mean even though he's not technically part of the team i just love his whole character the whole vibe being able oh, to great. ghost being able to vanish and even even though scanner is like his kryptonite who can actually see him uh, man, if I was writing this book, especially like after the Anderson Gillis run, this guy would have been the main star in like a Chris Bailey written moratory book. Just just good stuff here, man. Oh, he's great. Yeah. So the ghost uh, then enters Cherokee Mountain in order to track down the new prime minister. But first, we jump back to Vax's report. He assumes that the ghost will be successful in offing fake ass Lamont, which would which would mean that the power, you know, because Lamont is the prime minister. But he had pals, right? We we met his pals a few times through the run here. And uh, Vax uh, assumes that the power that Lamont would wield would fall to his partners in crime. That's Junzo Tanaka and Herman Zell. Here's take another step into the future here that they're probably going to fight each other for complete power. And they will ultimately wind up dissolving the world government in their yeah. conflict. That's a safe bet. to reason. Yeah. Uh, Vax suggests that there will be one key player used as a catalyst for this dissolution, and that one key player is Zakir Shastri, trademark the tiger. Oh, did they trademark the tiger? I'm assuming they did, but I didn't see it. Wow. <laughs> I'm just guessing. Boy, you, you talk about money in the Netflix era of the Tiger King. Boy, that there would be good. We join. We actually join the tiger as he arrives in Vic West's office, only to find old awkward suit dead on the floor probably with his head bashed into a wall. Uh, <laughs> Still in that loose fitting suit, baby. He is. He is. He's, he has not met a tailor that he is a, <laughs> that he's trusted yet. Now, the tiger ain't pleased, as he was hoping to chat with West in order to find out a bit more about the, the people who hired him. On the TV screen that's playing in the background, he watches as Aunt May's assassination is reported. He, like Tam Von Ock, assumes that Trademark the Wind was behind it, but he decides he's just done for now. He's going home for India to India, and he figures the Padilla can track him down if they dare. You know, if they want to, they can come try find him. Otherwise, he could give a rat's ass. Well, just think about it. I mean, he might be the smartest of the entire bunch here because he mm-hmm. realizes that, you know, the light bulb goes on. He knows that there's not potentially a cure that's going to free him, or at least he, he knows he's been lied to at least. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he's got about a year left, and he just does the right thing. He just, you know what? Screw you guys. I'm going home. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I, sure. you know, I think that's pretty cool because, uh, you know, when you think about these guys, they've got a year left. So what does their last year look like? What are they willing to spend an entire year fighting for? And it ain't the Padilla. That's what I'll say. So good on the tiger. He's going to go back to killing people and family, women and children. Back, <laughs> back his, I'm done. I'm going back to killing children. There you go. Uh, back outside, Revenge Spots trademark the wind's ugly helmet. And reveals that it belongs to the guy that he fought outside the super train. 
boy, does I mean, oh, first of all, Super Train, yeah. <laughs> anyway, this mask, it actually looks different again. Is that possible? Again. Yeah, this thing morphs. This is like Scanner's suit. Jesus, it's... I mean, think about it. It, 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 it. I mean, it didn't even serve a point. We gathered that. He wore this mask. It was dumb looking. I mean, the only thing that we could talk about was that he had plastic surgery. Maybe it was just covering his wounds, maybe. But, uh, man, every single issue, just like Scanner's suit. Like, mm-hmm. do, do they compare notes? Do they look at each other's issue? Or are they just drawing individual issues, like, on their own, not comparing notes? Because this is the only explanation think of with this it's true I, I like i wonder if calamy was drawing this like while bagley was still doing like number 28 or something i mean it's yeah, absolutely that's exactly what we're seeing here but uh yeah. you know guys let's uh let's stick to the prototype guys let's look at the one drawing and keep let's, going let's get a yeah what, what are they character bibles let's get one of those out here it, it reminds me of like around avengers versus x-men where nobody could decide what carol danvers looked like as captain marvel like sometimes she <laughs> yes. had like Sometimes she had like a buzz cut. Sometimes she had hair down to her butt. Uh, sometimes she had a mask. Sometimes she didn't. It was always different. Like panel to panel, she looked different. It was just like, don't we have like character Bibles or, or anything like that? So, someone not. needs uh, Jose Luis Garcia Lopez out here to uh, to fix all this stuff when it comes to character no Bibles. No doubt. No Definitive. Doubt. Definitive, people. We won't have these mistakes. But anyway, I digress. (laughs) Back to the issue here. And our man Dan the Scan deduces that this same helmeted weirdo was probably the guy who killed Aunt May. How would he have known? There's so many different hoods. (laughs) I know. (laughs) Then Lifter has an idea about how they might gain access to the mount. And so she lifts up the major. There are soldiers surrounding the entry. So she grabs the major, brings him to them so they can chat him up about the situation. She then returns him to his unit, where the good guys get the big old thumbs up about heading inside. Inside, Lamont is still being prompted to enter that panic room by his two goonish handlers. He looks on the screen or the monitor before him, and he's shocked to see that the moratori have been granted access to his top-secret base. Now, he tries using the command com- communication system, only to find that it's non-operational. His goonish goonish handlers don't seem all that surprised by this, and uh, Lamont begins to wonder why his security detail are acting like space aliens. Wow. Well, there's the the easy reason, or the uh, less obvious one, I don't know. Uh, Elsewhere, Trademark the Wind is just standing around in an empty room, yelling like an idiot, looking for a fight. Uh, He then finds himself slammed into a wall, not by the head, but by revenge. He's then set on fire by Burn. Uh, Dan the Scan runs in and, uh, well, he gets pummeled at super speed. (laughs) I mean, think about it. He's running in. He's joining this fray. And all he's got is scanning powers. I mean, what do you expect? He's he's not a fighter. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, I'm a scanner, Jim, not a fighter. You know, I don't know what to say. Holy cow. This but he always, like gets, the, he always gets his ass beat. I love it. It is like those issues of the New Mutants where they tried to put, like, Doug Ramsey on the front lines. It's like, he he, he translates. That's all he does. Stop it. <laughs> it translates into a beating. That's it. That's it. Now, Lifter gets involved in the proceedings, lifting the wind and sending him over to Revenge, who goes to sock him in the face. Which is a nice little tag team move right there. 
only the wind is far too fast. He catches Jason's fist and hip tosses him right into Lifter. Burn then hits the baddie with another burst of flame, but it's not all that effective. TM the wind threatens to make old Yoko real naked. <laughs> He's like, I like your costume, he does but too. I like it better off you. Uh, <laughs> instead, nothing, nothing like a bit of sexual harassment before sure. you go to kill somebody. But instead, to keep this on you know, the Comics Code Authority's good side, he just knocks her out instead. So violence against women is fine. Undressing them, not so much. Uh, then, another standoff with Jason, where our revenge reveals that, hey, he can charge up anything he touches. And, well, you know those real gaudy, furry cuffs that the wind wears? Well, Jason just so happened to touch him. Bada bing, bada boom, trademark the wind bursts into flames and is rendered into nothing more than a smoking smear on the floor. <laughs> and a scanner, you know, Jason's hurt, of course, from his hip toss. So scanner walks up and he sets Jason's shoulder as the dust settles. Oh, man, this is hilarious. This is like a sign of the like 80s movies where like the mm-hmm. hero, like Mel Gibson. Oh, man, yeah, Stallone would like, you know. <laughs> Pop a shoulder back in place. I like that Jason, you know, got a woman to do it for him, though. That was that was kind of cool. <laughs> just then, the ghost appears. Like, literally, he reveals himself to the entire team, not just Dan the Scan. And uh, he gives them the old, if you want Lamont, follow me. Meanwhile, Lamont is watching this all unfold, and, and dude's freaking out. Like you, you would. Like you would. He tries to figure out a way out of this when uh, one of his goonish handlers at A... And B, it's time for Lamont to come clean about his crimes. Oh, snap. Mm-hmm. Tom Von Ock leads our heroes to the panic room and after a bit of an argument, promises not to kill Lamont straight away. You see, the good guys need Lamont alive in order to clear their names. Lifter uses her lifting powers to jiggle the locking mechanism on the giant vault door. It swings open and out saunters fake-ass Lamont, who immediately gives up. Hands up, said the sheriff. Mm -hmm. Hands up. The news of this spreads quickly. You know, Lamont's attempted a coup and how the moratory ultimately saved the day. Like, it's like old man Lamont Scoob. Like, it's like it's like a Scooby-Doo episode. I mean, it's like the skid, you know, it's like the kids and they're like their Japanese ghost moratory have saved the day. You know what I mean? (laughs) It's true. Oh, oh, man. This is hilarious. Anyway, I still do. I still dig in it. For sure, for sure. Now, Vax, of course, is still reporting all of this to his superiors, and he reveals that he was able to put everything together after killing Tulima's poor assistant, Randy, way back in issue and episode number 24. Remember, he touched him, and we figured out that when he touched people, he could, you know, absorb their memories or just learn a little bit about stuff that's going on. Now, upon delivering all this information to his superiors, Vax states that... Phase one is now complete, and phase two is just about to begin. Well, I got some bad news for you when it comes to phase two. (laughs) 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 I I just wonder if this was part of the original Gillis plan for, you know, or was this all Hudnall's work? I got a funny feeling we already know that answer. Clearly, it looks so. This is is all Hudnall, I think, here. So I think so. I I think the whole beacon thing was like a was like an olive branch from. From Gillis to Hudnall, uh, just to help him start his own way. Yeah, I think, I, you know, I asked the question, you know, did Peter have vaccine? I, you know, have any ideas about the vaccines that were never realized? But I, I agree with you. I think that the, the beacon was just this open-ended tangent to, you know, spin off a new story. And, sure. and, and 
pretty good. You know, if you're if you're a good writer and you're passing the torch, that's the right thing to do. I mean, Absolutely. 100%. Even though they stumbled, flumbled, flipped and flopped trying to explain poor old uh, Dr. Tulima, you know, <laughs> <laughs> where he went. I mean, it took him, what, five issues to actually explain it. But anyway. It's true. Uh, but it's anyway, true. clearly the whole drop, you know, and the wipe out of the horde, you know. Plus, you know, what about the horde? Where are they? Are they completely mm-hmm. wiped out? Do we do we even know where they are at this point? We know that they, you know, fled for their life. But are they still around? Are they still alive? What's going on? How about Dr. Tulema? Yeah, last we saw he was getting on a uh, a flight to, what was it, the Netherlands? Yeah. Yeah. Is he just gone to the Netherlands and that's all? How about New Moratory? Do we have any new new Moratory that were that were in the the spin cycle, or was that just the very 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 end of them right here with the killers? Mm, It's all all kinds of questions. All kinds of questions, Hudnall. I know it. We need answers, but uh, we're not going to get them for 10 years. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Because uh, Vax does say that phase two will require 10 years to pass. You know, Um, they need 10 cycles of the Earth's rotation to pass before they can enact it. But it is happening. And uh, we do know that the electric undertow does take place 10 years after this issue. So we will find out all those answers eventually. Now, we wrap up the issue, the series, three weeks later, and we got our four heroes. They're out for a night on the town. Dan and Yoko reveal that they're going to be married. Now, naturally, since they don't know anybody else on the planet, they want Fiona and Jason as their maid of honor and best man. (laughs) Uh, They're planning the wedding for four to five months from now. You see... Time isn't really as much of a as much of a commodity anymore. There's not much of a rush since they found out about the cure for the moratory process. So Talima comes to the plate. Bingo bango, there is a cure. Uh, Fiona and Jason, we come to find, are also romantically linked because, of course, they don't know anybody else on the planet. <laughs> but uh, they're just in the living in sin stage. And uh, we close out the volume with our four heroes sharing a round of drinks. I'll be there for you when the rain starts to. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Boy, did this everything just like worked out swimmingly, didn't it? Uh-huh. I mean, let's clink the glass, brother. We did it. I mean, we did it. Everybody marries each other. They sewed up all the loose ends. Everyone's in love and in bliss and lives happily ever after. And boy, was this not the ending that I expected. But you know no. what? Surprisingly, I'm okay with it. Sure. We, we, this is one of the first times that we actually get like a happy ending and I don't even know how to process it. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> like, like we're here and every single time, like our characters always meet these grim endings. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So when you see everything work out, Oh, they got a cure. They're clinking glasses. They're getting married. What the hell is happening here? It's true. But you know what? I enjoyed it. Surprisingly, sure. I enjoyed it. And we got four moratories that are, aren't going to die in a year. Like, mm-hmm. That's crazy. Like not one of them. That that whole they got a whole generation that doesn't die. Yep. And Picture that. They're actually going to make it ten years from uh from the looks of it. So that's a that's a big that's a pretty big deal there. And uh, you know it feel it's uh, like I'm having trouble processing it myself because like that one last page there, so many revelations here. I, I mean that they're. How long have we been talking about a cure? When was it that Radian was uh, was taunted about a cure? Was that like issue seven? Oh, man. It was like super early. Yeah. It was way early. And uh, 
and here, I mean, and, and it, it's of course not the same cure. It's it's the you know the Jason Hordian STD cure, not the yeah, uh, <laughs> not the not the one that they they said they gave to that one dude in the black watch. But it's it's pretty crazy, and it feels almost like a, what's that old Stan Lee saying where he says never give the readers what you think they want because uh, what we think we want will will end a story. You know, we yes, want certain absolutely. things, but if we get those things, then we have no more reason to come back. And here, it was just like said in passing. It's like, yeah, there's a cure. We're good now. It's like, but, but, but that, that, that's it? <laughs> yeah, we didn't get to see the reveal. We didn't get the relief. Mm-hmm. And basically, the the killers, you know, they, they basically betrayed their, <laughs> betrayed their own, mm-hmm. you know, the government who hired them, who were going to opt them anyway. So I guess, you it's know, true. they did have a reason. But the the idea behind the cure was a legit thing. You know, they mm-hmm. they would have been okay if they went through with their you know murder of the moratory and they would have lived happily ever after with big bank accounts. But for sure, nope. And where is Tam Van Ock? How come he's not invited to the wedding? He's you know right? what? He's gonna be there, but no one's gonna see him. No That's one's the trick. Know. That's the trick. No, he's gonna he's gonna give them uh he's gonna give them like some glasses that have like a crystal rim on them that you'll never use. You know, because you yeah. get those kind of gifts for your wedding, but he won't sign his name to it. And uh, you, you know what he's going to be? Here's how I picture it. So picture November rain, the Guns N' Roses video, right? Okay. <laughs> and and you picture like, oh, my God, that, you know, when Axel and, and his supermodel girlfriend are going to get married. You know what I mean? They're like mm-hmm. struggling. They can't find the ring. And then Duff comes up all cool and he flashes the ring on his finger. That's and what, like, that's what yeah, Tam Von Ockel does. That's what Tam Von Ock <laughs> is going to do. And then the tiger is just going to walk out of the uh, – Walk out of the uh, the chapel, all cool, and go out in the desert and kill some children. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! But uh, you know, back to some questions you had uh, a little bit earlier here. We don't we don't get any closure from Talima, which is weird. Um, we don't get any closure on the horde, which so much of this series has been predicated on on this struggle with the horde, and they don't even. I don't even think Vax even mentioned them. They are your they were your main bad guy. Mm-hmm. Your main bad guy. And they simply went away with a finger snap That's it. when an, when another group of aliens came and just made them flee. Like they literally mm-hmm. ran away. And that was but it. It makes me wonder if uh, the horde will play into the uh this you know this phase 2 that uh oh. Vax was talking about. You never know. But it, Honey child, there's a lot of explanations that are coming. So, mm-hmm. you know, just yeah. we will answer some of these questions. That's all I'll tell you. Yes. And I, I really and I can't wait to get into I As we got into this, I thought I would be dreading Electric Undertow. I thought um, I thought when we got here, I'd be like just like, you know, looking for any sharp item in my house, you know. But, uh, <laughs> But nope. I, I, you know, we, we, we see a lot of like reunion TV shows these days, right? I mean, we, we've talked about like the 90210 one last year. We talked about, uh, which I mean, was a good. The, it was, it was good. Um, there was Saved by the Bell one is coming out. It, it, with, with streaming services, we've had a lot of these revisits and, and just reuniting with old casts that we enjoyed. And that's how I'm sort of feeling about Electric Undertow here. We're going to actually see these characters 10 years later. You know, we're going to rejoin them. We're going to be able to get this, like, reunion yep. sort of deal going. And I'm really looking forward to it. Um, and they're hairier. Yeah. You know, yes. <laughs> yes. And they have better <laughs> style. <laughs> they, yes, we do have some mustaches to uh, to discuss when we get there. But, uh, no, I'm looking forward to it. And we will get there, just not immediately. 
Um, you know, one thing I want the, the listeners to know that uh, if you've enjoyed, you know, these surprises that we've given you uh, over the past three episodes with guests and, and Q&As and stuff, we're working on lining up some more of those. So if oh, you dug it yeah. here, yeah, you're, you're probably going to dig it there. We got some very interesting names uh, that we're going to be addressing here. And uh, uh, there's a couple in particular that we're very excited about. So episode 32 will come yep. eventually. Just Stanley Stan Lee is going to be on. <laughs> what? what? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. I'm just waiting for him to respond to my email to confirm. That's all. <laughs> you sure it didn't get like redirected? That's in poor taste, but I'm I'm okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) But no, we have some we have some very fun stuff lined up and we're looking forward to sharing that. uh, But we don't want to rush it. So episode 32 through what, 36, 37, whatever Electric Undertow is, that will be coming just not right away. Yeah, but it's going to be cool. It's going to be a lot of fun. But, uh, you know, speaking of fun, we have the final Strike Force Mortuary letters page. To discuss I, here, I, I wish I wish Hudnall was here. I'd I'd, I'd literally give him a hug as we read this. Like he would oh. literally be be wrapped up with me in a blanket on the couch, and we would go through this as as both tears fell off from our mm-hmm. eyes. You're listening to these last little missives here. It's true. It's true. Now this is the opening from Mr. Hudnall. He says, "So now we come to the end of our story, but fear not. Our heroes managed to get another round, just as they requested on the last page of this issue." Strikeforce Moratory is switching to bookshelf format with the next issue. 44 pages a story in every issue, five to six issues a year. Fred, I got some bad news. <laughs> <laughs> next issue takes place 10 years after this story. Things have changed in the world. Dan Baker is revisited by the ghost of Will DeGucci. Boy, does this guy need some therapy. Mm-hmm. But this time, Dan sees Will when he's awake. Dan doesn't believe what he's seeing and fears that he's going insane. His marriage to Yoko is on the rocks. Things are getting bad all over. Oh, man. See, see, Yoko Uh just broke up the Beatles. I mean, the strike force. (laughs) She did. (laughs) Dr. Tulene. People worldwide are randomly bursting into flames for no apparent reason. The world government has collapsed, leaving North America split into four separate countries. The Moratory have come together once more, this time to fight their most insidious dilemma since their inception. If you've enjoyed the last five issues, then you won't want to miss the new storyline. The added pages allow Mark and I to expand on characterization and story. This new storyline is some of our best work, and we're really excited about getting about it coming about the way it's coming out. Get ready, you ain't seen nothing yet. No, and this is this was a book that you know originally that I dismissed until I actually took the time and sat down, and I I really wanted to to read more. So I you know mm-hmm. I reread the final issue of Strike Force Moratory, and I said you know what I'm just going to keep going here. And I recalled it being bad growing up. I sure. I guess I guess I couldn't relate. I probably didn't relate to the the characters at the last part of the run. So didn't mean anything to me but with all the context and you know 31 issues of you know straightforward reading that i had uh it, it was a fun time chris and we're gonna we're just gonna have a blast covering that thing oh yeah and, and i mean this is one that I, I was trying to rack my brain as to even whether or not i've ever read it because i know these last issues of strike force moratory the hudnall run i want to say i only read it one time you know yeah and I probably, oh yeah me too yeah and i probably didn't read it quite as deeply as I should have, because I remember coming, I came away from it 
with the same feelings as, you know, like the, 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 the Twitter hive mind. I thought it was garbage. And uh, here we are actually paying attention to it and finding out, oh, OK, this is actually not though not so bad. But you, I, you know what's funny? Hmm. So so we're going through like I'm going through my I, re- I read all this stuff digitally. OK, so sure. I'll, I'll just be upfront with the audience. But the other day when I was just going through my collection and I'm going through some stuff and all of a sudden I'm pulling out like late issues of Strike Force Moratory. It was like hitting the jackpot. It was like Christmas. <laughs> I'm like, I don't even recall buying this. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> just like yeah it was like jackpot but uh you know back then like you said those things were disposable like you didn't yeah. think not one thing of it like strike force moratory was not on the you know the top of anyone's reading pile no. when it absolutely should have been so it should have been for sure so it's a i i don't think i i think i might have read the first issue of electric undertow one time and i don't think i ever moved on from it so a lot of these are those things are to- big man they're there is some there's some deep reading they are. Yeah, they are a lot of pages, and uh, now I'm looking forward to it. I'm definitely looking forward to it. But uh, let's get into our letters here. Our first letter comes from someone called Tar Heel Dave in North Carolina. Ooh. And he is writes it, is, in, it, is he related to Low Effort Dave? He might be. He might okay, be. Okay, okay. Well, they'll reach out and find out. Makes now, sense. he – well, actually, you know what? He is kind of low effort because he brings with him <laughs> the jokes. <laughs> oh, okay. Here's the joke. Ready? What do you have if you brought the moratory back? A bunch of Marvel zombies. Oh. <laughs> uh, a replies that they're all rolling in their graves with laughter. Um, <laughs> oh, just which is important. Th- 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 uh, think about that comment. Hudnall is yeah. dead himself, so. Yeah. Oh, but I boy. think this might be like a case of be careful what you wish for, because Hudnall was begging for letters, and it's like, this is what you get. And it's like, oh, hey, hey, jer- hey, jerk, you want letters? I'll give you a letter. You, you were you were better off leaving that bear alone, Hudnall. Yep. You, you never know when Tar Heel Dave is listening. Um, <laughs> letter two comes from another pseudonym, the Bad Texan from Michigan. I guess you would be a bad Texan if you lived in Michigan. Yep. Uh, he loves the new moratory. I'm assuming so it's a he. We. Well, well, uh, so do we. So do we. Hates the Padilla. Well, that's that's. <laughs> they're all gone. So so whatever. Happy that Doctor Talima is back. Well, uh, as long as he's back, he's gone again. He yeah. he MIA. So you're gonna have to wait to find him again. <laughs> and uh, wonders where the Vax storyline might be headed. Oh, that's easy. I'll tell you. Nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> In fact. Hudnall doesn't even bother to reply to this one. <laughs> Not worth his time. He must be, like you said, now he's begging people for letters, and then this is what he gets. Yep, and he's like, screw it. I'm not even going to respond. I'm uh, out. Letter three comes from Raja in Pennsylvania, and I think we've heard from Raja before in this run. Uh, says that issue 28 is the best of the Hudnall run. Okay. Though they do share a dire anecdote. Quote, Unfortunately, between the direction of the present plotline and the stacks of unbought Strike Force moratoria at the local comic shops, I have a foreboding sense of finality concerning the series. Hmm. Uh, well, it's hard to disagree with that. I mean, think yeah. about it. I mean, this was not the book that should have went direct market. Let's be yeah. clear. You know, you, I mean, you sheared off about 80% of your audience immediately, you know, taking newsstand away, basically. I mean, this is 1988. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or 89. Uh, I mean, newsstand was everything. And if you're trying to increase something sales, you don't like reduce its audience. 
true. I, I understand you're trying to make this thing a specialty item, but if the book is not doing sales right now, it's certainly not going to do sales if nobody's familiar with it under direct market. It's, it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy is what this was. Yeah, this that's just like the Marvel method of uh, promoting low-selling books is to make them as hard to get as possible. You either, you either take them out of where people can see them or you raise the price or both. It's like, that's not going to work. You're just trying yep. to milk the existing audience at that point while you while you pedal it into the sunset. But uh, They should have had Speedball crossover. They should have. That would have worked. But, but then it would have been a new universe book. <laughs> it's so muddled. It's so muddled. <laughs> now, um, Raja continues here. They're afraid that this book will end before issue 35, though they hope it'll make it to 100. Hudnall replies with, don't worry, Marvel is standing by this book by hook or by crook, which rhymes. Okay. So it must this, be true. <laughs> so this is where we're going to do a translation for the people here now. So what he means by don't worry, Marvel is standing by this book, hook or by crook, is we will continue to put the same effort into this book as we always have, which was zero. <laughs> I mean, let's let's break this down. So there's never a mention in the ads with the exception of like the first two, two or three issues. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? The Marvel checklist or the bullpen bulletins yep. rarely ever, ever, if anything, ever talked about them. Nope. The characters did not appear in any other title, so there was not even a chance of getting, you know, that Wolverine or the Punisher pop. Nope. So what chance in hell did this book even have? It's not no. talked about. Yeah. They don't talk about it. They don't advertise it. They don't give any any reason to pop a rating. Like, like you know, you know, if, if a book was dying in the 80s, you knew damn well that Punisher, Spider-Man, or Wolverine was appearing to save its ass if they truly wanted it to, to last. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But it's books true. like book, books like Speedball and Strike Force Moratory, those guys ain't coming. So no, oh, they yikes. sure ain't. I mean, even like there was that issue of uh, Star Brand where it had the X Men yeah. on the cover because it was a playoff oh. of like a Comic Con. I'm oh, sure that was that terrible. Actually, but I'm sure it actually sold books. Oh, absolutely. Like seeing Nightcrawler and Wolverine on the cover of Starbrand, it's like, well, yeah, I got to see what that's all about. Um, you should you should have knew right away how Wolverine was drawn. Like you're oh, like, awful. man, oh yeah, it was terrible. But intentionally <laughs> so, intentionally so. The book will tell you that, yeah. Um, now, letter four is from John and Fontana. Uh, John loves the killer moratory, and uh, he wants more information on the bookshelf format. So, uh, my my my, this is a convenient question, isn't it? Well, yeah. Hey, sir, the thing you're trying to sell, can you tell me more about it, please? Oh, man. Hudnall um, does a fair bit more shilling, but warns that there'll be a gap of a few months between this issue and the first of the new format. I, I think the, the John here is actually the artist. <laughs> you know <laughs> what I mean? Calumny, yes. <laughs> yes, I think that he's uh, he's actually uh, sending in letters on, on his behalf. I mean, very, <laughs> it, like you said, very convenient questions. It's almost yeah. like, you know, they're made up. And you know what? I think they should have done this the whole time. I mean, they seriously, should've. why struggle to have letters in the book when you can just fake up letters and make them positive and ask questions? People mm -hmm. are reading this stuff. Yeah. Why not get out everything you want, promote your book? Nobody else is going to promote it for you. Nope. So why not do it yourself? But instead, the letters that we got, Chris, were like destroying it. Oh, my God. Anderson are gone. I I'm going to hang myself with a belt in the closet. You know what I mean? They were all terrible. Yeah. Anyway. No, it's. Anyway. What a yeah, shame. there is. Yeah, there is a. Uh, there is a logic to faking it till you make it. And, yes, uh, fake it till you make it. 
I always yeah. said, I always said, it's one of my, it's one of my own theories. It's always walk like a boss, you know, no matter where you are, or what situation you're in, because people are attracted to that. If they see somebody who's coming in, confident, yeah, you know, if they got their head down or something like this, and then someone just blows into the room, and you know, they're this large personality and there's stuff going on. All of a sudden, people flock to them, and you yep. might be, you know. The, you know, the cart boy who uh, who makes five dollars an hour, you know what I mean? But, man, you got their attention and now you're leading the troops. So, you know, yeah. there's something there's something to this. For sure. For sure. Now, letter five and final comes to us from Mike in Pennsylvania. He loved issue 28 and he misses Brava. Well, I, I miss Brava, too. And she yeah. was one of the few leaders that the moratories ever had. And plus, yeah. man, this uh, she was a powerhouse, like great totally. personality. And she looked pretty generic first when they introduced her. You know what I mean? There yeah. wasn't much meat yeah. on the bone, but they added layers to her. And she became that person you could rely on to, you know, be brave face of, of a war. And you know what? She was a woman in this role, which was even extra special back then. Sure. Because, you know, this was not shoehorned in. This was organic. This is not, yeah. you know, hey, we need uh, diversity in our comics. Let's make Captain Marvel, you know, the said, you know, the leader of the Avengers. No. This was organic. She was, you know, she found her way. She gave, you know, she became leader, well, out of nowhere, I think, but still it worked. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. And uh, that is our final letters page. Um, I I, I flipped through Electric Undertow. There are no letters pages there, despite Mr. Hudnall asking for letters over and over (laughs) and over again. Um, So this will be the last Moratory Monday letters column that we ever cover. Um, There might be. That it is. Yeah, I I I might be dipping into Usenet. Uh, to see if there's any conversation about Strikeforce Moratory uh, as we uh-huh. move forward. So we might cover some Usenet uh, tidbits if, uh, if we can find any with actual meat. Um, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. But uh, but as for actual in-print letters pages, that's that. But wow. we're not done because don't call it a comeback. The bullpen bulletins. We've got them. Yeah, boy. Got and we start with your favorite part, the quote of the month. Oh, my God. Do you want me to read it? Oh, yes. Oh, this is from my favorite character and yours, Moon Knight, because Moon Knight certainly doesn't suck. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to be back on home turf, kicking the rear ends, the rear ends, mind you, of a few average lowlifes. Average is underlined. Yep. (laughs) Marvel's Batman, everybody. Moon Knight. (laughs) What is that? Uh, there's a song that I hear on Yacht Rock Radio sometimes from Starbuck, and it's a uh, it's Moonlight Feels Right, but it sounds like he's saying Moon Knight feels right. Oh no, it never feels right. No, it, it feels right for about four issues that it gets canceled. I was gonna say it, it feels right when you see Moon Knight on a trading card and you'd be like, wow, that's a cool costume, and then you read a comic with him in it and it's like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> It's, it's shit. <laughs> Not good. Oh, boy. From here, we got news you can use. Ooh. Our first item is the Marvel characters are appearing in commercials for Sears, and that includes Spider-Man and the Incredible Hulk. Oh, man. Sears was huge in my hometown. It's like we didn't have a lot of malls, okay, mm-hmm. or places to shop around. You know, you had you had a few things, but it was pretty close, you know, close-knit. 
Sure. So we always used to have to travel like two hours away to buy stuff. So we always used to rely on catalog sales. So if it was a Christmas or a birthday or something, my mom would always go through the Sears catalog. And man, and that, circle Se- things and, yep. that Sears wish book was every, it was a yearly event, man. And it oh, was yeah. something myself and my brother would spend hours and hours and days pouring over and and canceling and updating the note and oh man Sears was just so cool it was it was huge to have it in my hometown now I ended up working for Sears really yes and I'll tell you a very 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 short story so anyway <laughs> all it, it was just a catalog location so they had like a little storefront where you could buy a few things uh, you know washer dryer appliances and different things but in the back room you know, they had the warehouse. So everything that everybody would order from the catalog would come in and we'd store it in our warehouse by slot. So you know what I mean? It would go, you know, Chris Bailey ordered a T-shirt and it would be in slot I-5, okay? Everything yeah. had a place. So it was easy to find people's stuff because there was no computer systems back in the day. It was just, you know, you had a book and you wrote down where people's stuff went. However, I was a huge wrestling fan and we got this delivery of mattresses one time, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, we had this giant set of steel. That, that went up, and I used to have to use a forklift to, you know, lift stuff down and put stuff around. So I lifted myself to the top of a rack after I stacked all my mattresses. And guess what I did, Chris? <laughs> you deliver an elbow or a leg drop? I, I, delivered, I went for my best Mick Foley dive right off that ladder, <laughs> right down into the, the stack of uh, mattresses. And you'd think that you'd get, like, a nice cushiony fall. But no. These <laughs> nope. mattresses were covered in plastic and slippery as hell. And I slid from one end of oh. the stock room other, and I did not stop until I crashed up against the wall and like stunned myself for a couple seconds. But yeah, so. <laughs> Sears, everybody. <laughs> oh man, uh, <laughs> our next <laughs> news item is uh, that Marvel artist Bashful Bob Hall will be performing in a production of Shakespeare's Henry V for the Rude Mechanicals Repertory Group. I thought it was okay. Uh, Okay, yeah. Yeah. And Mark Ruinwald gives it a stirring review, though it seems like he has it confused with an issue of Thor or something. I almost blew a nasal cavity. I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm sure this was supposed to sound a lot funnier than it actually did, though. Uh, I think we say that a lot when it comes to our butt dive channel. <laughs> Here we go with butt diving again. Oh, boy. Uh, next news item, the documentary Comic Book Confidential by Ron Mann is making the rounds of conventions in which Stan Lee looms large. Mm. Also, uh, it features R. Crumb, Harvey Kurtzman, Will Eisner, Al Feldstein, Bill Gaines, Jack Kirby, Frank Miller, and many, many, many more. I've never seen it. Have you? Uh, I have. I'm st- I'm wondering, did I? Because Comic Book Confidential sounds familiar. I'm going to have to check YouTube for it this does. thing. It does. Okay, it is on there. Some something it's, tells it's, me that, it's almost got to be. Yeah. Yes. Oh no, this thing. Yo, this thing absolutely rings a bell. I, I don't know. I don't know if I've ever seen it on on YouTube or what. I'm not entirely sure, but it it rings a bell, man. I'm not I'm not entirely sure that I didn't see this thing. Yeah, I remember seeing something like a comic book documentary, like or like maybe it was called a like comic book the movie, because I think. Like Mark Hamill starred in it, and it was like around yes. the turn of the century that I'm thinking of. I, I don't know that I've ever seen this, though, but maybe something worth looking into. Um, yeah. Now, our next news item is that Frank Miller, speaking of Frank Miller, will be writing the screenplay to RoboCop 2. 
Oh, man. Every time someone thinks of Frank Miller, they think of his Daredevil run or, you know, Dark Knight Returns. Mm-hmm. Nobody talks about his deal with <laughs> RoboCop 2. Well, I'm <laughs> telling you, this was great work by Miller. I mean, uh, this is this is one of the most underappreciated sequels you've ever seen. I mean, if you like, have you seen RoboCop 1? I know you don't watch a lot of movies, but have you seen the original RoboCop? Nope. Oh, man. Anyway, okay. So I won't belabor the point. But anyway, Miller takes this character in like a whole new direction. So what's the one thing that you do? What's your, one of your – one of the, the big tropes in comic books is that, you know, if you have a certain hero, like you make a nemesis based An off that equal hero. or opposite of villain, yeah. Yeah so, yeah. so you have like Spider-Man has Venom. Like Superman mm-hmm. has Bizarro. You know what I mean? Well, you know, RoboCop meets his, you know, super high-tech equivalent. And, you know, ah. he just – Miller just had a knack for writing this character. So RoboCop 2, everybody. If you want to see some good Frank Miller, that's it right there. The final item is that Stan Soapbox is coming back. Write the F now. So uh, yeah, baby. let's hop into Stan's soapbox. Um, he reports that it's been 15 years since his last soapbox, which can't be right, can it? Oh, man. Well, I don't know. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think he had to have done being... something in the early 80s, right? Oh, yeah. We're being lied to on that. I think so. Now, Stan is here for one reason. <laughs> one reason only. It's to tell us that Marvel has been bought by the Gallant Group, who are the owners of Revlon Cosmetics. Oh, man, you know that he had to hate this because, you know, mm-hmm. I think Stan Lee's entire thing that he was working on at this time was trying to hook his heels into like the cinematic universe. You know what I mean? Yeah. The MCU that we know in 2000, I mean, is a big, big deal, a huge Disney property. It's one of the things that, you know, propelled Disney into like the money making monster that it is right now with just that alone. And I mean, mm-hmm. that was Stan Lee's vision that he wanted to take it. He knew that this thing could achieve. Big, big cash, but I don't think he sure. knew that it would be this big. I mean, this is, you know, nation sweeping. But back in the day, their cinematic efforts, you know, were – who was it that had them? New Line? Was it New Line Cinema or New – I, can't I think it was New World Entertainment. New World, yes, New World Entertainment. And they had a whole bunch of movie divisions and all that type of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I think that when a cosmetics group took over, I think this just took the wind out of Stan Lee's sails here. I mean, his yeah. entire Hollywood journey would just stalled a bit right here, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Stan does make a point to uh, bid a, f- a polite farewell to their former owners at New World Entertainment. Um, and that's it. That's his sa- that's his entire soapbox. Oh, man, it's- we waited 15 years for that. Uh, and it makes me wonder, like, maybe the seal wasn't quite dealed a couple months ago, which is why they kept pushing back the bullpen page for month after month. This is like the th- – we had, what, like a span of like three months without a new bullpen bulletin page. So I wonder if but, there was just some uh, T's that needed dotted and I's that needed crossed. I don't know. But it's just one of those things, like, it's like it's like disappointing your wife on your wedding night. You know what I mean? It's just that <laughs> you waited all this time, all the build up, and then, oh – Nada. Uh, yeah. You're like a you're like a wet sock. <laughs> From here we jump into our profile, and it is uh as mentioned, Mark McLaurin. And uh what he does is he's the assistant editor on Cloak and Dagger, Doctor Strange, Mark Spectre Colon Moon Knight, Power Pack, Punisher, Strike Force Moratory, Hell yeah. What the Yeah, What the Marvel Fanfare, and Shadow Masters. And he is the associate editor on Alpha Flight. 
Ah, that's some like <laughs> I'm looking at these books. These are like like mid-tier jobber books. Like I didn't particularly yeah. love any of these books, with the exception of Strike Force Moratory, but I didn't I didn't really hate them either. I mean, you know, yeah. I bought many of them for sure. Sure. But Shadow Masters. I have I have no memory of this at all. Do you like? I'm, do you I, have Shadow you know, Masters? I probably do, but uh, I don't. I can't remember it off the top of my head. Let's see here. I'm gonna. Wanna vamp for a bit and look up Shadow Masters. Here we go. It is um oh He's boy. going full treadmill. No, I'm kidding. No, no, no. I'm, I'm going <laughs> I'm going full Wikipedia right now. Um This is uh these characters have been depicted as the Punisher's allies. So I guess it's like a group of a, a group of fictional ninja characters. So they spun mm. out of Punisher War Journal. And they were created by oh. our man Carl Potts. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. I know what this is. Yeah, I've heard of it. But I I don't have any issues of it. Hmm. Yeah, I I might have something. It looks like they they look like prestige formats. I don't know though. And one of the things that I will say is that Moon Knight is on that list as well, Chris. And mm-hmm. boy, that is one of <laughs> the most overhyped characters there is. I mean, he can't sustain a solo series. You know, even his popularity back then, it just it just didn't coincide with sales numbers. I mean, I know people who like freak out every single time Moon Knight is part of a conversation. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Do any of them buy one single issues? I'm going to have Probably to say not. no. But uh, yeah. it's funny because the MCU just wants to hitch his train to like, you know, Marvel's pale excuse for Batman. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know, maybe with the right actor, maybe someone might finally solidify this character into the stratosphere. But, uh, man, that's some... Um, that's some low-hanging, dirty fruit there that I don't want no part of. Yeah, he, he kind of ranks up there with the Inhumans with me. It's like, ah, oh, it's a cool concept, but I don't actually want to see it. No, um, I, th- I think that this should be like a a foil-plated uh, Jim Valentino type of vibe, I think. <laughs> <laughs> you know you want it. Yeah, the, only, the only thing I could think of with, uh, with Moon Knight is like Stephen Platt did that issue that went like, like uh, wild yeah. in the price guides. Uh, I love Stephen Plant. Yeah, I, he did. He did profit for Liefeld as well. That's right. And, uh, That's yeah, right. and I, uh, I, I really dug his art. And I actually, that is one of the few reasons that I did own a Moon Knight book was because yep. of uh, Platt's Platt's version of him, which was great. Oh yeah. He looked he looked like a jacked up monster on like super steroids. He's like if you gave somebody steroids and it wasn't good enough, and you gave him more. That's what that's what that's what Moon was. <laughs> Lance credits include uh, he was the writer on uh, a few presents stories uh, those include in the dark featuring cloak which appeared in Marvel Comics presents number nine cover dated December 1988 there you go uh, the first cut starring the thing appeared in MCP 21 June 1989 yeah. object starring the wasp appeared in MCP 48 April 1990 oh. whoa 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 I'm back. The, the real thing, starring the Punisher, appeared in MCP 59, September 1990, and a lot of these are in the future from this uh, from this profile here. Yep. Uh, Vampire, starring Blade, appeared in MCP 64, December 1990. Hero in Hiding, starring Luke Cage, appeared in MCP 82, August 1991. So these things were written uh, pretty far ahead of time from when they actually hit. Wow. Yeah. So that that's why they had no continuity or or sense of purpose when you when you finally read these issues, you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah, they, were they were like, all okay, inconsequential. Yeah. Yeah, just just make sure that the wasps don't do anything because we got this story there for MC <laughs> MC yeah. nine here. 
he also did pencils on some Marvel Universe figures. Uh, I couldn't find any sort of uh, confirmation on which figures. Uh, he was a colorist on various Marvel gigs, which mostly include early 90s Marvel Comics Presents. Mm. Yeah, his current freelance gigs, he's the writer on a story for What The called Awful Flight, which is a parody <laughs> of Alpha Flight. Finally, someone agrees with me. <laughs> and that would appear in What The number 7, April 1990. Uh, also, some future Marvel Comics Presents things that actually came out before some of his past Marvel Comics Presents. Uh, this is a arc called Life During Wartime that featured Firestar that ran from Marvel Comics Presents 82 to 87 in 1991. Uh, he okay. also did, okay. I don't know if you read that, but that was... We actually covered a bit of that on From Claremont to Claremont. It was decent. Yeah, I was I was just happy to see Firestar, so... Yeah, and also a backup story for Justice in the new universe, which we couldn't track down, but, you know, those new universe backups are usually hard to really suss out online. Uh, maybe yeah. one of these days we'll find it somewhere, somehow. <laughs> maybe we'll, maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll even talk about it. Maybe somebody will talk about it. I don't know. <laughs> just think, I want you to put yourself in their, his shoes now, for example. You know your career is on fire when you're doing... New universe. Backups. 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 Yep. Hell yeah. <laughs> Give me that money. <laughs> that, you know, you got to think about that, that. That that pays out for years to come, right? <laughs> Imagine the royalties. Oh, man. I can't even I, pre- begin to calculate. Yeah, I think, I think this is the only situation where you have to pay in. <laughs> you get a yearly <laughs> Reverse royalty. <laughs> yep. Now, uh, his hobbies include reading, writing, and painting scary things. Okay. Um, the thing, the single work he's most proud of is his haircut, though I have seen pictures of him current year, and he is now bald, sadly. Well. So, yeah. I, I guess he's proud. Um, bald yeah, and proud. Was. He was. Uh, his pet peeves include people who sing along to music in public and people who can't make up their minds. So we got well, us a joke. I will agree. I will agree with that. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. People who sing along to music in public, most of them are not talented, like myself included. Okay? <laughs> but, uh, you know, when, you, when you're obnoxiously singing in, in public, you just want to just, you know, find a wall so you can slam your head in it. We need some. Yeah, we need the uh, trademark the tiger to get involved. Um <laughs> He was born in Springfield, Massachusetts, and uh, which is uh, apparently the city of homes, homeboys, and home fries. Oh, boy. That's a lot of homes right there. That's true. His uh, greatest accomplishment outside of comics is graduating art school, which I, I suppose we might assume that his haircut is something he lumps in with his comics achievements then. <laughs> well, he did have – with this picture here, he's got like that jerry curl going on. He does. Remember a new edition or something, and he's got like that – you know, that little bit of grease and drip going on there. It's pretty cool. He does indeed. His oddest habit is singing along to music in public. Oh, you rascal, you. Oh, who would play him? (laughs) Who would play him in a movie? Well, he says Tubbs from Miami Vice or Herman with a tan. (laughs) Oh, Tubbs. I got a Tubbs story, believe it or not. Now this this is going (laughs) to So I love Miami Vice as a kid. I didn't really much understand it because, you know, I was a, I was a young kid. I sure. didn't really get the whole drug references and all that stuff. But I liked the style. So, you know, yeah. Don Johnson was like the, you know, the cutting edge of style back then with the hair and that friggin' white blazer, you know, the cool white pants and no socks. No <laughs> socks, man. Like, who does that? Seriously. Anyway, 
And yes, it's wild. So anyway, <laughs> my grade eight, grade eight graduation. Uh, my mother got me a nice white blazer. Oh yeah, <laughs> blazer. A nice pair of white slacks. Slacks, Chris. That I wore. <laughs> nice, nice pair. Now I did wear socks, and they were they were gross black ones. So you know, picture <laughs> that. And a nice, uh, nice pink shirt underneath. And I have a nice. a god awful graduation picture with my, you know, hair parting right down the middle, like exactly fine, nice and pencil thin <laughs> through there. Giant, giant Coke bottle glasses. And my mom has like this mega tan, and my dad looks like he's forty years older than he actually was. It is <laughs> the best picture ever. But man, you know, I, I got a nice grad pick, and uh, my parents still have it in their house for uh, to mock me for years to come. I think. Now the the question is, did you roll up the sleeves on your blazer? Oh, you damn! <laughs> as soon as I went through those doors, you got to make sure that people see you do it. Is a thing. I tell you what, those girls. As soon as I did that, as soon as I rolled up those sleeves, every single one of them turned away and ran. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if they fainted or if they ran away. <laughs> oh, boy. Now, why did Mark McLaurin pick comics? Well, he did so because his mother told him not to. Oh, man. Boo. Boo. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he did it despite. But, you know, I encourage my kids to draw and create. You know, it's, it's my thing as a dad, baby. Mm-hmm. You know, my, my kids like to sit and watch me draw. And, you know, they're actually pretty damn good, man. Like, I, cool. I, I remember myself back when I was, you know, you know, 10 and 11 years old and, you know, my level of skill, you know what I mean? Trying to sure. draw a Jack Kirby image or a Keith Giffen image. And I could, you know, I couldn't even get a straight line in there. And my kids are like, they can look at anime and mimic it. Just go, boom, oh, wow. there it is, and it's there on the page. You know what I mean? Sure. So, geez, I don't know. I, th- I think we're being uh, outdated by the, the younger gens, my friend. I think you're right. Yep. Um, now, folks in high school thought that Mark McLaurin – I didn't understand his answer, so we're just going to skip it. It was convoluted and uh, didn't make any sense. And uh, I don't want to pay much attention to it. Uh, his, fa- his favorite performers include Humphrey Bogart, Harrison Ford, Squeeze, UB40, Elvis Costello, and Jerry Mathers as the Beaver. Starring Jerry Mathers as the Beaver. Oh, man, I, I love the Beaver. Leave it to Beaver. I watched mm-hmm. that crap. Uh, you know, it was one of those things. Retro TV was on all the time back in growing up. You know what I mean? After school. Sure had these like uh you know two hour blocks where it used to be the brady bunch they'd have leave it to beaver they'd have all kinds of different things on there and i was all about it it was like the nickelodeon oh, yeah. you know what i mean sure and when i used to go on trips but uh man i know i know kids these days would look at that and go hell nah i ain't watching no black and white crap but man that was that was me back in the day i watched every bit of that and especially jerry mathers as the beaver and everybody talks like this when they're announcing people mm-hmm. why <laughs> I used to do uh, the same thing after school. Uh, we had, uh, you know, Superstation TBS it was Channel Three back in uh, back in Long Island, New York, and uh, they would have Leave It to Beaver on, and they also had the New Beaver. Do you remember the New Beaver? Yes. Oh my God, that was brutal. Wow, that was so bad. I that, that there's actually oh, <laughs> oh there's actually like the whole series I think is up on YouTube because I think I I tracked it down like a year and a half ago just to see how bad it was, and oh boy. It is awful. Like it, it is. Leave, early leave it to Beaver. You would call it awful in its own right, but it's of its time, so it yeah. had an excuse. This ain't of its time, man. This was trash. No. 
No, and I remember finding out about the new Beaver by watching a WCW Clash of the Champions where the guy who played Eddie Haskell was brought in as a judge for a match. And uh, and they announced it as being part of the new Leave it to Beaver. I was like, what? But, uh, yeah, not good stuff. Oh. Not good stuff. Um, now, the last good book that he did or didn't read is The Tao Te Ching which is a translated collection of Calvin, Calvin and Hobbes strips. So I'll buy that one. I think he probably did read that. You know what? Calvin and Hobbes is one of those books. I, I, I liked it, but I don't mm-hmm. think I ever thought I never got that iconic vibe from it. You know what I mean? No, when I think sure. of like, yeah, like a lot of people like hold this in high regard, but you know, yeah. to me, like peanuts and Garfield and all that stuff to me, that's classic comics. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I just don't see Calvin and Hobbes in that light, but you know what? It has a huge fan base, man. Sure. Huge. But anyway, I don't get it. it yeah. Not for me. I, I, wonder, I wonder if like those Calvin peeing things that people put on their cars might have made me feel a little bit less about it. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah. Uh, the last good movie he saw was Bright Lights, Big City. Is that Michael J. Fox? Yeah, that wasn't a good movie, though. Okay. I like uh, Michael biggest... J. Fox, but that ain't it. Mm. I don't remember even seeing that one. Um, biggest influences are Charles Dickens, Heinrich Clay, Howard Pyle and Jack Kirby. So no right? Stan Lee. Ooh, making a statement, this guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, his greatest unfulfilled ambition is to be a penciler on a regular book. Well, yeah, it goes so. without saying. That's good. Good. These are good answers. These aren't bad answers. No, they're good answers. They're outside of his uh, his his ho- his hobby of singing out loud was a uh, a little bit cute, but uh, <laughs> uh, the worst part of his job is the ha- is having to beat up bullpenner Henry Candelario every month. I do. Okay. I, yeah. the first time I've ever heard him. Maybe he, uh, he makes copy across the street. Could be. <laughs> <laughs> or or I, maybe that's just in his contract. You have to like beat up this guy. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, when nobody's looking, our man calls Mark Siri on his office phone to make him run for the phone. So, uh, Good prank. sure. And, uh, what the people need to know about him is that he doesn't actually look like himself and it's all just a clever disguise. Oh, very clever, very clever. Actually, not 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 a, not a bad profile at all here. No, uh, no, know. this was a fine one, a fine he's one. Got, he's got some interesting stuff going on there. I I would hang out with this guy for five minutes. Sure, sure. It's you know this is definitely uh, on the upper echelon of the profiles for sure. Definitely. From here we jump to the Mighty Marvel checklist and we get no blurbs except for She-Hulk number one, which they're still pimping hard because check it out, this bullpen page was supposed to run two months ago. <laughs> Strike Force Moratory number 31 doesn't get a blurb as the final issue. They're still pushing Strike Force Moratory number 29 here. I'm asking you to catch up. I mean, you, where, you guys clearly didn't buy issue 29, so why don't you just go back and buy it now, please? So where are the uh, butt dive boot camp editors responsible for putting together the bullpen pit bulletin page here? Couldn't they update it to reflect the actual month the books were coming out? Oh man. Like I said, the, this is filling content, man. This is just putting pages in books, and they're at, at this point they don't they're, read they're them. In, yeah, yeah. They're indiscriminate, and I guarantee so you, this is not a hallmark of the shooter era because every single panel, every single ad that went Everything into those was books, vetted. yeah, yes, it was thought out. It made sense. It advertised something that they were doing, but mm-hmm. man, they they clearly lost that. They definitely lost the plot here. Um. Alrighty, so that was the vaunted return of the bullpen bulletins page, and uh, 
Well, we're not done just yet. We do have a couple of ads here, not too many. Um, we're going to start with one that looks looks kind of like a, you might confuse it with like a Captain O prize page. You know, remember those things? Uh, but it's not for uh, for any sort of, you know, sell crap to your neighbors who will, uh, you know, immediately put no solicitation signs on their door after you leave. This is actually for a video game. This is for Metal Gear for the Nintendo oh. Entertainment System. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, any any good memories of uh, of Metal Gear? Well, first of all, yeah, absolutely, of course I do. Uh, mm. But this this ad, you're exactly right. It's just like a Captain O one, but just imagine yep. buying enough stuff to like order a remote <laughs> a remote control ballistic missile or infrared yes. goggles. And a couple of the, a couple of the items here are curious. So you get the iron glove, which allows you to you know locate locate and break hidden doors with a single punch. You've got, like, plastic explosives, grenade launchers, oxygen tanks, metal detectors. I mean, you but name it. the pack of cigarettes I mean, isn't there. Yes. You can, you, can order, you can order a Beretta M92F single-action handgun. You know what I mean? It's hilarious what's on here. And this is marketed to kids, of course. Yeah, And, of course. boy, was that right up my alley because I rented this bad boy. That's right. I didn't own it. I rented it. So a lot of the convenience stores around my town uh, rented video games and they were three dollars and fifty cents to rent them and you get them oh, for wow. exactly one night now wow. i don't know if you played metal gear oh yeah but i hate you, it <laughs> yep you aren't beating metal you aren't beating metal gear in one night i'm sorry no. children uh, especially when you're you know a you know 11 or 12 year old kid in the 80s you ain't touching this in one night so my three dollars and fifty cents went down the hole but it was even extra short because when you rented these games, it was sort of a crapshoot. You know, would you get the instruction manual or would you not? You you had no idea. And if you did, sometimes it was in tatters and covered in spaghetti sauce or, you know, mm-hmm. chips what in the book. And I mean, just crap. Just so gross, basically, yeah. you'd get the slip case, you know, those old Nintendo little slip cases that they came in, those black mm-hmm. plastic ones. They were cool. And sometimes they would stuff the instruction manual. Now, key to this game, you needed the instruction manual just to clear the first level. So here's the deal. So you're walking around, you kill a couple wolves, uh, you know, you shoot a couple guys. Now at this point, you basically have no weapons. So you're going around, you're collecting your items. So you got to collect. You have to, hot, you have to, because this is a stealth game too. So you're not yeah. just running and running and gunning. You have no, to. No, no, no. You have you to sneak. Yeah, you have yeah. to sneak behind people and stuff, which is a total subversion from what you would usually think of when you play a like a video game. Very, yeah. very strange. Yeah, and it, it sounds a lot better than it actually is, because it kind of sucked. <laughs> it sucked a lot. Well, it's it sucked even worse, because one of the first screens you go to, you go to like a bunker, mm-hmm. okay? And you go inside. Now, you realize there's absolutely nothing to do inside this bunker, with the exception of a telephone that's in the corner of the room. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're like, okay, what, what the hell do I do with this? So you go over, and you realize that you can actually dial numbers. Yes. Now, apparently... There's a secret number that you have to dial to get out of this. They don't tell you what it is or give you any hints. There's no hints in this room. There's no hints anywhere. Apparently, it's in the instruction manual, which I did not know that it was in there. (laughs) So let me tell you something. Let me tell you how how we passed two and a half hours, myself and my friend, dialing stupid numbers. Zero, zero, zero. Zero, 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 one. And I mean, any combination you could think of birthdays anniversaries just random numbers from the future we tried it all and that's where we got stuck on metal gear one was in that effing bunker and i hated it and then all of a sudden 
one of my friends who was, you know, the, the cheerleader of the Nintendo hotline, he used to love calling that thing and blowing cash all over the place. They told him that, you know, oh, it's in the instruction manual. All you got to do is look in the instruction manual. And of course, we didn't have the instruction manual. So my friend basically found his way out at a later date. But uh, <laughs> sadly, it cost us about, you know, $14 on the Nintendo action line. You could have bought the game. Yeah. Yeah. About the stupid. And I, I'm 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 glad I didn't buy the game. You know, no. I, I I made peace with my uh with my Metal Gear, but this thing really didn't pick up until like Metal Gear 2 was really good, and then you get into other games like Solid Snake and different things like that. So this series picks up considerably, but Metal Gear 1 is uh whoo. Yeah, and uh, and the the Nintendo didn't have enough buttons for this game, I think, because. No. There were like bits of it where like you'd go into rooms with poison gas and you have to like immediately put on your your gas mask, but that like includes going to a menu and then into another menu to put it on, and then you have to, but that's like all you can use in the room, so it's it's so bizarre and uh, and there'd be rooms with like trap doors, but they like that would just like fall in your in the floor in front of you, but you wouldn't know where they were. <laughs> yeah, exactly. To, it was it was so bizarre, Chris. I don't know. I don't know if this was intended to be like a super fun game for kids. I mean, it was something different. Okay, so you had it was the very stealth option. Yeah. yeah, but different in a way that you wanted to smash it with a hammer. <laughs> yes. Okay. Yeah, I, I am not good at stealth games. I I even have the latest, uh, the latest Metal Gear Solid. It's Metal yeah. Gear Solid Five, and I made it? it. I made it past the credits, and that's it. <laughs> I don't think I killed a single person because it's like. I have high anxiety as it is, but like playing a stealth game where it's like you're you're literally just dropped at a camp. You know, you're like yeah. you're put in this camp and it's like, OK, do the thing. And you don't even know what the thing is. Yeah. So it's you're just like, uh oh, what do I do? And I, I'm not good at that. So I just start shooting people. And then, of course, yeah. that puts the, the exclamation points over everybody's head and they start swarming me. So it's like, OK, can't do it. <laughs> so I'm, I'm, for, I'm not like a fan a of. I'm not a fan of directionless games, so I like yeah. to know, you know, I don't care if there's like an indicator arrow telling you to go this way. At least you sure. know that you're on the right track. I can't Absolutely. stand walking around an open space 3D world and just wondering where the next level is. That drives me crazy. That's I'm telling true. you, when when I first played the Nintendo 64 and I had a decision <laughs> to make, PlayStation or the Nintendo 64, okay? That was my crisis of conscience. Of course. Which, which, which system am I going to get? And uh, my mind was made up the very second that I tried Mario 64, and I mm -hmm. walked around, and there was no clear indication where to go, and I just shut that thing off. <laughs> nope, not for daddy. I actually just started playing Mario 64 again on uh, on the oh, Switch. Did oh, did you buy the new uh, the, the anniversary? Pack? Yeah, the yeah, uh, yeah, the 3D All Stars. Yeah. Oh yep. man, it's it's a lot of fun. It's been a long time since I played Mario Sunshine, but uh, Mario Sunshine, the most underrated Mario absolutely. game, is the best. If any, absolutely. if you have not played Super Mario Sunshine, put away Super Mario Galaxy One and Two. This yep. thing is amazing, actually. It's a lot of fun. I, those levels where you don't have your flood device, though, those obstacle oh. courses. Oh, those oh, things can go. Those things can go pound sand. Those things are friggin' hard. <laughs> that, the game was a challenge, but it was fun. Yeah. And and it was all kinds of new characters, and you got to do different things with Mario that you never mm -hmm. ever got to do again. By the way. No. No, for I sure. I I really no. loved it. I really liked it. A lot of fun. A lot of fun. And one more thing about uh, renting games here, and the and the lack of instruction manuals here. There was a game. I don't know if you remember it. It's called Star Tropics. 
Oh God, yeah, hell yes, I have. I own Star Tropics. Oh, cool. So you know that in order to make the submarine not explode or whatever, <laughs> you need to put in a password yes. or a code. And the way you get this code is by your your instruction manual comes with a letter from your uncle, and you dip it in water, and then these numbers show up on the on the paper, and those are the numbers you ty- you type in to the submarine to make it not explode or whatever. And I think it's like 747 is the numbers, but uh, oh, get it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, I, but when you rented the game, nobody ever told you that. No, you oh. didn't get that. So you were you, stuck. Yeah, even if you got the the instruction, you weren't getting the letter from your uncle from the from Mr. Video on 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 Montauk Highway. You know, it's a uh, real crapshoot, <laughs> real crapshoot. <laughs> I love it. It seemed like video stores used to pop up everywhere in my hometown. Like, Big time. Like first, I remember the early days of VHS when you were just, you know, renting a movie, for example. Sure. I mean, it would be like the weirdest places to find videos would be like a furniture store that rented mm-hmm. VHS tapes. You're like, what the? Who would have thought? <laughs> like pharmacies would have supermarkets. Yeah. Yes, supermarkets would have walls, or and then of course they. We never did get Redbox here in in Newfoundland. Okay. You know what I mean? Sure. We never ever had that uh, dispenser that you can just go rent a movie and it had, you know, it would drop into a. Uh, Drop into the, your 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 hands, you know what I mean? Yeah. And just bring it back the next day, slide the disc in. But you know that wasn't a thing until actually that's a lie. It came about about three years ago. We finally got a one red box unit in a grocery store, and it was okay. it bombed. I mean the 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 ship had <laughs> sailed on rentals, you know what I mean? Nobody was doing yeah. that anymore. Everything's digital, but we yeah we still have red boxes in front of just about every damn store here, uh, every supermarket, every pharmacy, uh, every convenience store. There are red boxes in front of them. Isn't, it's, isn't that it, weird, like a weird thing to even think about right now? I don't know about totally. you, but I it never cl- crosses my mind. I think I'm going to go out and rent a movie. It just never, never. That, that used to be my Thursday and Friday night ritual. Like every single sure. weekend, I would always rent a movie. And just oh yeah, something that yeah, went or, away, man. Yeah, you rent a movie or a video game to to fill the weekend, and that was just the ritual. But now I couldn't even think about it. There's it too much out there to, to waste is, yeah. uh, to waste an man. hour and a half on a movie. It's uh, pretty crazy, but uh, we have one more ad we're going to cover here, and it's actually a two-page spread, and it's uh, it's kind of like a little comic on its own, and it is called The Tales of the Spinges. Whoa, two pages dedicated two to page Spinges. Spread. Yeah, it the almost feels like a DC bonus book. It does. So, <laughs> so if anyone is familiar with, uh, I guess, you know, a more modern equivalent to this would be Beyblade. You know what I mean? Okay, you get your, sure. you get your. So basically, these are toy tops, and they come with little rip cords, and you send them off, and you know what I mean? They they'll spin around and they crash into each other, and parts explode and different things. Well, spinges was similar to the tops idea, where you had your your rotating spinners with their pull cord and all that type of stuff, except they had characters mounted on it to it. So I mean, yep. we're basically almost in the era of you know karate fighters and different things like that, where you know characters fight indiscriminately, but they had their own little arena, so you could you know drop your top into like almost like a a wrestling ring type of thing, right? Mm-hmm. But uh, but anyway, they got inside the little squared circle, I'll call it, and uh, you know you you flung your spinges at each other and they crashed and banged and that was the fun you would have but uh they got a two page ad now yeah i've seen a lot of toys including gobots transformers he-man they only got one page but spinges got two and it's an actual comic yep. like 
two full pages of comic art where they're actually fighting and they give the characters names and yep it's king crazy. Deathblow, dreadheads emperor gar the eliminators it's <laughs> it's crazy but but we have no credits we have no, no credits so for it who if you are the artist for spinges reveal Let yourself damn it yeah i don't, I don't so know we I don't, must I don't, know <laughs> I, I think that uh, no matter what show we end up on, we must find out and have this gentleman on and explain I himself. Think so. <laughs> you need to tell us that that character at the top. So they got a news reporter. It almost looks Kevin Maguire-ish. I wonder. Oh, can you the imagine? Rest, the rest of the characters don't look like it, but you never know. With Mr. Yeah, it Maguire. looks just very, very, uh, very you know, house art style. You oh know, yeah. Very, oh yeah. Very inoffensive and. And uh, we don't get very many faces here. It's, a lot of these masks are almost full facial coverings, but uh, it's an interesting little tidbit there. It reminds me of a lot of the uh, a lot of ads were like this back then. Uh, you have like the I remember like the Mr. Bubble Bubble Bath was a was yep. a comic strip. Um, in DC Comics, there were like there were like to be continued comics for Capri Sun. If you remember those. Oh yes, absolutely. Where it was like four months worth of stories, uh, you know, kind of, I mean, coming full circle, going back to the very first episode of this show, this is like Gumby's Adventures in Gumdingerland. <laughs> oh, yes, I recall. The torturous, the torturous Gumdingerland. Yes. Boy, yes, this is full circle. It sure is. Uh, Man. Which uh, I guess uh, brings us to uh, to the end here. No, um, no, I refuse to go. I know, I know. We're gonna handcuff ourselves to uh to the moratory train, the super train here, to make sure we uh. Where we where can't... is Hudnall? Write something else. <laughs> oh wait a second. Uh oh. That's 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 poor taste. That, yeah. Now we're kicked off the air. We, we've actually got kicked off in our last episode. <laughs> <laughs> but Boy, uh, you know, uh... but just like Mr. Hudnall himself said, don't fret, cause uh. We 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 we're not done done yet. Uh, we're we're not just done, done with the monthly series here. We still have. We've got five issues of Electric Undertow to cover and some other stuff. We're going beyond Electric Undertow, and uh, a few people out there, their ears might perk up, thinking that we might be talking about a more current year take on the Strike Force Moratory, and uh, yeah, we will be, but uh, yes, not sir. just yet. Um, this is kind of where we're going to sign off for now, and this uh, season here, uh, we are doing... Kind of like a late new fall season is what I'm calling it for this channel. So there's going to be yeah. new stuff coming, new shows, um, a lot of fun things that uh, that uh, we're all excited about. So we're going to be doing something to have to do with a uh, with something looking. Look, I'm looking outside my window right now and I see the world. And, oh, uh, is yeah, it new? Might... Does it feel like a new, a it, new world, a new? It is, and I, and I, and, I, and I, I mean. There's a lot of white in the sky. It's very tingly, and uh, Ooh, you're, you're yeah. changing. You're changing before me. I, I see. I see a weird shaped star in the daylight sky. Uh, but like we will. <laughs> every everything is happening around us. Football teams are becoming superheroes. Oh Mercs from Vietnam Mercs. are coming to rescue us. My goodness. Yeah, stars are being branded, and uh, oh. masks are being knighted. And oh my goodness. Spitfire oh. is meeting troubleshooters. Who knows? Who knows what's <laughs> happening here? And I suddenly have a thirst for justice. But uh, <laughs> we'll, uh, <laughs> better wear your night mask for that one. I might. Oh my. But uh, oh yes, my. we will. We will be doing some new stuff. And of course, there is Quester Days, and uh, yes. there's some. Uh, 
we're going to be trolling the the very depths of weird comics, and we'll, we'll do a little bit of something with that. And, of course, we will have Electric Undertow. Um, there's going to be a, a show that might be legion I mean, legendary uh, to some. Uh, there's a... And uh, maybe Moonlighting Strangers will uh, meet on the way. So we'll, uh, we got a lot of stuff coming. We got a lot Man. of stuff coming here. But uh, this will do it for the main run of uh, Moratorium Mondays. Uh, like I said, we will be back. Moratorium Mondays number 32 will happen somewhere down the line once we get some pieces put in place. But uh, I would, I would, lit, I would love to, uh, to thank our listeners who stuck with us yes. through. Uh, through 31 episodes we didn't we didn't think we'd ever be able to make it because you know you, you start a project and sometimes you don't end up there and you know with uh with life gets in the way and you know we, we've had we've had every curveball you could possibly think of thrown our way and uh, we kept it going and you guys have been there with us along the way and uh man this is uh this is a big deal to me and i just want to say mm-hmm. thank you to all our folks and uh, yeah. hopefully you'll stick with all the new stuff because you know you'll still have our our Chris and Chris action and uh, <laughs> a couple more new guests who can uh, throw some words into the microphone for you. Absolutely. Hopefully you'll dig. Yeah. So yeah. And to, to follow up there, uh, it, if not for, if not for the listeners, this would be a lot harder to do. Um, I hate to say that we do it just for, you know, for, for the, the fame and fortune of podcasting, but uh, it, <laughs> without, without people who, who actually are invested in, in care about this and just enjoy you know the cut of our jib and these uh and and people who we've introduced to these uh to these amazing comics um without without your guys's support and uh and your sharing and your reaching out uh this would be a lot less fun and a lot more a lot more difficult to do so it really means the world to us that uh, that there are folks out there who are who've stuck with us through breaks extended breaks potentially final breaks uh at certain points <laughs> during this year um <laughs> It's uh, it's been a year. Uh, I think it a lot of us can year. agree it's been a year. But uh, I think that's where we'll put a pin in this series for now. Um, anything else you want to say before we cut out? No, my friend. I think we will ride off into the sunset with the uh, final issue of the main series and the final episode of the main series. How sad it is. but uh, It sure is. Big thanks to everybody. Huge, huge thanks. Um you know, if you want to get a hold of us, we're at Ace Comics and Charlton underscore Hero on Twitter. But uh, I guess till next time, until the electric undertow sucks us under, we'll talk to you again real soon. See ya. You you guys still there? I, you? Uh, I I I still I there's still lights, you know blinking on my on my phone here since we are doing this live of course i, uh, I, still... I don't want to stop chris i, okay. I thought about it i mm-hmm. thought about it i i wanted to end the episode uh i can't do it so i'll tell you what i'm gonna do we're gonna do an entire pitch force moratory <laughs> segment you're damn right i made a promise that i was gonna clue up the uh, strike force moratory animated series and mm-hmm. by god we're going to do it. So for the folks who hung on after the credits, boy, do you got yourself a nice fat after credits series right here. So there you go. You know, I'm the kind of person who I, I've had a Band-Aid halfway on a cut on my finger for about a week and a half. I can't just pull it off. It just is so hanging there. So we we promised going. a lot of extras at an extra fat episode 31. So you're getting it. So if you're still awake on the other end of those earphones, here you go. It's Pitch Force Moratory, the animated series. Season 3, 
And mm-hmm. we're going to start. I'm going to kick it off with episode one. I call this Strangers in a Strange Land. So the Moratori met the Vaxians on the last episode. So mm-hmm. Harold, Lorna, uh, Robert, Jaylene, Aileen, and Mikhail, who is Splinter, uh, find themselves in the presence of a new world. And this time, it's the one they have not seen before. They face off with a fish-like alien humanoid in a white and blue spacesuit with the verbiage Vax 117 emblazoned on his suit. Now, Jaylene analyzes the being unbeknownst to itself as Harold attempts to communicate with the unfamiliar being, trying to show that, you know, they're not hostile. We ain't hating you. That is until good friend Splinter, old Mikhail, decides to just jump and attack the guy. And of course, scene with uh with our vaccines that that doesn't go well so uh splinter is shocked by uh you know shocks this monster but the monster has a uh, has a heads up so good old our good old vaccine actually uses his reduction ray and actually shrinks him to the size of an action figure <laughs> much to the humor of the team the kids are instantly subdued of course the vaccine you know puts them in in a holding cell and when they awaken they are found locked up with a single Hordian commander and a series of cats. Hmm. Hmm. Now, from here we jump to the second episode. This one's called A Killer Party. And if it's uh, not clear, this is where we're going to meet some killer moratoria. The killer moratoria arrive on campus, and they're now running academia. The new big kids on campus arrive, and Dan, Jason, Yoko, and Fiona are being shown up in every single class in school. The school unveils a scholarship program that can be won by the students who successfully win the science fair. Now, our girl Fiona leads the team and decides to do a project uh, using uh, X-ray technology, which is Dan's specialty, of course, in order to detect fire, which is Yoko's burn powers. They create a hovering fire detector slash scanner. Now, the kids are very happy with their combined project, even though Jason feels left out and, you know, not being part of the creative process. Meanwhile, our killers, Julio, Tom, and Zahir, assemble a project involving an invisibility cloaking device that can hide anything. Zahir and Tom work hard on the project, while Julio plots to, you know, take all the credit for the assignment. Uh, The new moratoria, the winners, and the killer team implodes during their presentation as Weibo exposes Julio, trademark the wind, intentionally tampering with their project, which disqualifies the killer team's presentation. Julio storms off, leaving the others with egg on their face. The kids celebrate with the, their win with a party. There's a knocking at the door during the party, and it's two of the killers. It's Tom and Zakir. Jason smiles and welcomes them into the party, and uh, the party just rolls on. Outside, we see Julio stewing as he's on the phone with some unknown party and informs that individual that he has a plan to trap the kids, and he's going to do it sooner than later. We rolled into episode three, the class trip, and it's the train ride from hell. The super train! <laughs> All right. And it's the class trip around New Europe as the kids board the Professor Yuri Stylin' new super train. And the kids enjoy a fun-filled ride through the countryside. The killers, Tam and Zakir, have joined the new class on their trip, trying their best to get along, despite being humiliate, humiliated at the science fair. Now, Julio has other ideas. Weibo tries to warn the kids that the wind is tampering with the train's controls and kick the engineers off the train and also set the train to go on autopilot as the train is diverted to an abandoned mag rail track that's been abandoned for years and is damaged. And with that broken track, 
means there's a giant mountain range that they're going to plunge down to certain doom for the kids. They don't know what's about to befall them, and Weebo discovers that the train is going to crash, and his all his alarms go off as the show ends. Mm. Episode 4 is called Who Says You Can't Go Home? And here, the original moratory attempt to do just that, go home. Trapped in the cell, Aileen uses her molecular bonding melting powers to open a hole in the bars and make room for a smaller person, namely Aileen, uh, Jaylene, and the cat creature to run for freedom. Now, the Hordian commander causes a stir, causing a rousing battle between himself and Big Robert. Big Robert takes everything the Hordian can dish out and shrugs sarcastically as he takes the big alien down. He pounds him from pillar to post all over the cell. <laughs> now, this causes the vaccine guards to be alerted, and they rush to the cell to subdue the Moratory and the Hordian captives. Just as Vax-117 is about to blast Robert with the shrink ray, those cat creatures sneak up from behind and steal the cell keys from the Vaxian warrior, and then they pounce away with this distraction. Robert then throws the Hordian into the Vax soldier, and Harold slams the door shut. Aileen and Jaylene meet them swiftly with a getaway vehicle, and they speed off to an escape ship. Mikhail argues that they can't leave without counteracting his, you know, his size problem because he's still he's still bite sized He's still fun sized A little little miniature action figure. Now, the kids tell him that Dr. Tulima will reverse it when they get home. Splinter, he, he, he's not buying it all the way. He throws a tantrum and demands that they stay until, you know, he's fixed. Robert pushes the kids into the escape vessel and stays with Mikhail as the others do not want to leave their friends behind. But Robert is Robert. He insists that he'll find a way home one day. Jaylene analyzes the controls and sets the coordinates for home, and they blast off to freedom with their new cat friend. We head into episode five. It's called The Last Stand. So we pick up as the train crashes hard, sending our heroes cascading to their doom as the wind stands grinning, rubbing his hands, and reporting back to someone off camera that he has taken care of this moratory problem. Now, Weebo awakens in the train wreckage, and they are underwater. As the team awakens, they have to free themselves from their watery grave. Now, Revenge tears the top off the train as Lifter pushes all her team members to safety. In the water, as Fiona passes out. She's in no situation to go helping other people. She's underwater. Now, Tam Van Ock actually goes back in and saves her as Zakir makes a makeshift rope bridge as the killer moratory saved the day. The wind is stunned, and they have survived the they have survived and attacks them. Dan Descan is KO'd immediately, like he always is, mm-hmm. and he dispatches the remaining moratory easily. The wind generates a cyclone, speeding towards our heroes. But Jason jumps inside, jumps inside the cyclone, and actually charges it up. Then he pulls the wind inside his own cyclone, sending him into the cosmos and off planet. So he's no longer a problem. The moratory collect the kids. And are ready to drive them home. Yuri arrives just in time, and he he's there he's their driver. I don't know if we can trust old Yuri, but anyway, we'll see. <laughs> As everyone joking, uh, you know, everyone is joking, makes the joke that the wind was just full of hot air, and everyone laughs. Weibo, who's in charge of you know, he's in back of the mag van. He sees a tablet with a message beacon coming from the wind. Apparently, it was Yuri who was communicating with our boy all along as Weebo beeps in panic to end the show. Mm-hmm. That brings us to our final episode here, Schools in Session. The team are back on campus licking their wounds from their battle with the wind. 
Dr. Talima enters and addresses the team. He tells them he's proud of them, and he tells Jason, Revenge, Dan, Scanner, Yoko, Byrne, and Fiona, Lifter, that the next wave of moratory students are coming, and it'll be up to them to make sure they're welcomed on campus. Now, the killer moratory are rewarded by the kids for their help in defeating the wind. Zakir notes that he misses home, and he'd really like to be returning there. They move to Tom Von Ock, the ghost, who is suddenly missing from the conversation. The kids look around confused when a knock comes on the door. Lifter opens the door, and there stands Von Ock with Professor Yuri, who is shackled with and has an apple in his mouth. Revenge jumps up to protect the professor, but Tom tells him that uh, he has something to show the kids. That'll, uh, you know, show a video of Yuri stuffing Weibo in a filing cabinet and uh, the phone record conversations, uh, which revealed him as the mysterious mole. Now, Tom uh, warns them that everything is not as it seems, and he pulls a mask off of Yuri that reveals him to be Headmaster Fake-Ass Lamont of the Ah. Padilla to the shock of the kids. Now, the real Yuri makes his presence known with Tam and triumphantly makes an announcement that the school has been taken back from all the evildoers and a new group of administration and teachers will be taking over ASAP. Without further ado, they're introduced, and it's the Moratory Originals. Our school president is Viking, Harold. Our school counselor is Jaylene, adept. The librarian and computer lab assist is Aileen. The phys ed teacher is Lorna, Snapdragon. The shop trade instructor is Louis Arminetti. The team celebrates the new look of the school. Uh, there's one person who is not celebrating, and that's Splinter, who is you know, still teeny tiny as a result of being shrunken by the vaccine warrior a couple episodes back. He kicks up a tantrum telling everyone to bring him back to normal size. Everyone laughs as Harold jokes that they will, but not for another few hours, as Weebo licks Mikhail's face and slobbers him to the uproarious laughter of the group to close the show. But before we go to to the scene, to that, the scene zooms out of the school, off to the city, then into the atmosphere above Earth, and finally back to the Vaxian homeworld. There we see waves of vaccine warriors standing rank and file, staring up at the high balcony, awaiting someone or something. They cheer as a caped figure, seen only from behind in shadow, walks out to address the enemy. This figure is revealed as Big Robert. He is now in command of the vaccine homeworld, but looks very different, now bears the giant M tattoo on his face. He's draped in gladiatorial armor and it looks, you know, battle-worn. He proclaims that they have conquered the Hordians and their next mission will be, and the camera pans out to show our world as he utters the word Earth. End of season three. So I wonder if they're headed. I wonder if we're going to wait 10 years for, uh, for the, next, <laughs> the next beat. <laughs> that one was for our listeners. So we, mm-hmm. we've had, uh, you know, we've had one of our listeners, uh, who who didn't want uh, who wanted a solid conclusion? So uh, I hope that uh, that fills that little bucket off the list there, my friend. But uh, <laughs> I think we can call it a uh, call it a day, man. We had the I Anderson so. interview. We had our pitch force segment. We had a great great issue to cover. Uh, this one was stack jacked, and it had all the bells and the whistles. So I hope you guys have loved the last three episodes because we put a little extra something in there for you. And mm-hmm. uh, man, we were we were super glad. But I think. I think we can actually legit head off to the sunset. There won't be there won't be any Ferris Bueller uh, Ferris Bueller antics on the, on this one. 
no, no, we, we're we're done here. <laughs> One more huge thank you for everyone to uh, for the support, for listening, for sharing your time and sharing your ears with us. It uh, it means the absolute world to us, and uh, it wouldn't be nearly as fun without you. So thank you all so much, and uh, it won't be long till we're we're caught up in the electric undertow. So you know, keep your keep your Mondays free because you never know when we'll be back again. So till then, we will talk to you again real soon. See ya!